Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Kenneth Miller, who is the president of Kepler College, and we're going to be talking about the relationship between ancient Greek astrology and ancient Sanskrit astrology from India, or in other words, the relationship between ancient Western astrology and ancient Indian astrology, or Jyotish. Uh, hey, Kenneth, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. And just to get, I usually get the date in. So it's uh, Monday, January 27th, 2020, starting at 4.06 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. Uh, not sure what episode of the show. I think it's 2.40 something. Wow. Um, yeah. So you've been on off and on. I don't know how many appearances you've made on the podcast, but you have appeared a couple throughout, of times, yeah. throughout its history at different yes. points. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for joining me for this one. This is a big episode and a big discussion topic because it's something that comes up relatively frequently in contemporary debates where there's a debate over whether there was a relationship and specifically a transmission of ancient Greek astrology 2,000 years ago and whether um, a text on ancient Greek astrology went over to India where it was translated into Sanskrit and then um, somehow influenced or, or even sometimes some people go far as so far as to say created the practice of natal astrology in India at that time. And this is uh, Become sometimes becomes a very heated debate. We're going to try to approach it from different standpoints over the course of the next hour or two, and do our best to be sensitive and present both sides of the argument. Sure, sure. That's what we're gonna. Okay. That's what we're gonna do. That's, that's what we're gonna our, try to do. That's our job. Yeah. That's All right. So part of the basis of this is one of the observations that I made in my book that I thought was interesting and funny was that ancient. Cultures. It seems like in the ancient world, in the Western tradition, there were often these debates and like these contests about uh, between, especially the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, about like whose astrology was oldest. And you see these reports in ancient historians about, well, the Mesopotamians say that their tradition is like ten thousand years old, and then. The same author will say, "Well, the Egyptians claim that their their tradition is twice as old, and nobody really knows what's going on." So it seems like sometimes in the ancient astrological traditions, this is a point of contention about whose tradition was oldest, and people had like almost like ego contests about that for some reason. Well, because the being older was better. You know, we live in the mm. flip side of that now, whereas there's this sort of unconscious: the more modern, the better. Is oh. Maybe science will invent a solution to our climate change problems and stuff like that. So, wow, we ha we have such better technology than we had in the '50s. So we've sort of flipped that. We're the modern. But when you go back to these, uh, what we consider ancient cultures, yeah, the further back you went in history, the more, you know, street cred you had uh, in terms of you know being the first or being the oldest, uh, you know, being the most. I guess it maybe. When we used to revere our elders, you know, they're, they're, it's the extreme form of that uh, with regards to ideas. Um, sure, anyway. and when it comes to like ancient yeah. wisdom traditions, just placing emphasis on that, or we can see yes. a version of that recently in like Western astrology, where there's been some groups of Western astrologers who are going back and translating ancient texts and That's thinking right. that making arguments like saying that old the older astrology is better or. Right. Putting more more emphasis on the importance of ancient astrology or what have you. So anyway, but there's a modern version of that debate though that's sort of happening now, or it's sort of developed in recent decades, where 
some Western scholars argued that there was a transmission of Greek astrology to India around the first or second century, and that this somehow informed or influenced Indian astrology in the state that it is in even now, 2,000 years later. And in recent times, um, sometimes when this comes up in discussions amongst astrologers, there can be really strong feelings where especially um, Indian astrologers will sometimes push back and say, no, our tradition is thousands and thousands of years old and is the older one. And if anything, our tradition influenced the Western tradition, and that's where they got their astrology from. So to me, it's almost like an exact analogy of some of the ancient debates that happened amongst like the Egyptians and Mesopotamians. Yeah, and I think what complicates that is because in India, um, Jyotish or Indian astrology is really dialed into the religion. It has um, a religious component to it, and and, there, and, a, and I think a, a religious pride attached to it that you know further sort of complicates um, the issue. Sure, that's a really good point. And we should actually, I should introduce you for those that might be uh, <laughs> seeing you for the first time, even though you've had many appearances yeah. on the podcast. So part of the reason I'm talking to you today, not only because you're the president of Kepler College, but also because you have a background in Indian astrology as your primary practice, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, but you also have familiarity with Western astrology and have studied both traditions? Correct. Yes. Okay. Studied um, Hellenistic, medieval, modern, and but, I practice Indian. And Indian is your primary thing, and, and you've been studying Indian for a few decades now? Yes. Uh, let's see. Yes. Okay. I think I started in like 95. So, yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, so, going back to what we were just talking about, um, so there's pushback on that idea. And, and that's a good point that part of it is because in India, astrology has become much more integrated into the religion and into the culture, especially in the context of Hinduism. But there's also other issues surrounding like colonialism that are part of the basis for some of the pushback as well, right? Right. So just to give a thumbnail sketch of the history for the listeners that aren't uh, familiar with it, um, astrology in India was ex unlike um, unlike its history in the West, it was completely dialed into the culture and dialed into the religious fabric and the social fabric um, of of the times to where even this day when I've traveled in India, almost every village will have an astrologer you know, the astrologer of the village that people consult. So it's something that is more believed in than not, and sort of the opposite of the way we experience astrology here in the modern West. I think, wait, what was your original question before I go um, off on that, a tangent? There's, <laughs> there's um, other cultural reasons over the past century, especially uh, yes, yeah, having yeah. to do with like colonialism and the British the way the British treated like Indian culture, that is part yeah. of the reason why there's some sensitivity surrounding this when you start discussing the possibility that foreign astrology influenced the foundations of Indian astrology. Yeah, I mean, you just have uh, notions, uh, kind of a track record of notions that have not given India its due. Um, and there's like a long legacy of uh, um, Indian contributions to to science and art not not being given its due. You know, for example, the number zero. Uh, people don't realize how long and hard 
the West fought against that concept. And really, it was only dialed into our mathematics a few hundred years ago, uh, whereas India never had a problem with that, didn't have a problem with infinity. Uh, in fact, our numbers come from the Sanskrit numbers. If you look at our quote-unquote Roman numerals uh, and you compare them to you know the Sanskrit numbers, you can see that they're derived from each other. So um, there's just a lot of, um, I think, bad feeling. And I don't want to speak for Indians or India as a country, but I think there's just a a long history of, hey, you know, you're not taking our achievements seriously. You're not giving us our due. You're not uh, showing us to be the inno innovators that we we have been. Sure, and even potentially during the period of British colonialism, yep. when when the British were were in control of India, suppressing some aspects of the culture. Yeah. Okay, is that true? Or I, I mean. Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I'm not, that's not my area of expertise, okay. but uh, certainly my understanding is with a lot of the, uh, area, a lot of the British empire, there was this notion of the British, you know, we're going to kind of parent these, uh, people that aren't as sophisticated as us. Although that ran into trouble because, uh, what they quickly found out was there was all this sophisticated uh, religious philosophy and ideas, and and there was a period in the 19th century where there was some romantic, I would say, romanticization of India, and you find all this praise uh, of Indian ideas, and you you start seeing people making claims that everything did arise, uh, you know, from India and spread out. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we'll find as we go through, especially with, when it uh, comes to horoscopic stuff, that it's, you know, there there was clearly some some forms of indigenous astrology. I mean, no one is questioning the antiquity of the nakshatras and certain other features. Um, what we're really dialing specifically on is the notion of a horoscope casting a chart for the moment someone was born for their particular life. And I guess that's what we're going to get into as we go on here. Yeah. So let's set the stage for that. So part of it is that in the West over the past century, um, academics suddenly, some academics, some small groups of academics got interested in studying the history of astrology and reconstructing it within the context of the history of science. And they started initially working on the Western tradition in like the late 19th and early 20th century by going around Europe and collecting all of the surviving astrological manuscripts and then editing them and, and comparing them and then republishing some of them in modern printed editions and then eventually translating some of them. And this led to modern academic scholarship being able to reconstruct roughly as best they could based on the surviving evidence like the history and chronology of Western astrology, um, starting in Mesopotamia and Egypt and then having its development in the Hellenistic period and under the Roman Empire where it got really popular. Then the Roman Empire fell and it was transmitted to um, the Islamic Empire and the Arabic-speaking world in the Middle Ages, then eventually transmitted back to Europe in Latin texts where it flourished during the Renaissance before falling out of favor uh, during the Enlightenment and then coming back in the 20th century in modern times. So it's like Western scholars spent a lot of time reconstructing the history of astrology within the context of just it being an important development in terms of history. 
Uh, but then there were some scholars who also started doing the same thing and trying to work on the history of Indian astrology. Mm-hmm. And one of these was a famous scholar named David Pingree, who was he was kind of like a not a polymath, but he was like a polyglot who knew a bunch of different languages. And like yep. his thing was especially ancient languages where he knew like Sanskrit and Greek and Latin and Akkadian and um, I'm trying to think of like he knew all the modern modern Romance languages like French and Spanish and English um, as well, but he knew a ton of ancient languages. So for his PhD dissertation, he went back and he t- published what he claimed was the oldest um, text in Sanskrit that he could find on Indian natal astrology, like the concept of casting birth charts. And some of the things that come along with that, like the use of the twelve houses and aspects and house rulership and other things like that, uh, and he published this text in 1978. And the argument that he made was that this text um, had a bunch of Greek loan words in it, where um, they were Greek words that had been transliterated into Sanskrit, mm-hmm. and that this showed that the foundations of natal astrology in India. Around the first or second century CE, were a result of a synthesis of Greek astrology and the indigenous astrology of India up to that point, and that was basically like the core, I think, of his his argument. Right. Right. That was okay. the core of his argument. So um, he. So it depends on how you frame that argument. I mean, one of the things I want to point out is that that wasn't a fully unique argument to Pingree because I've actually seen scholarship from like a century or two ago in some old astronomical like scientific journals where I saw a guy who was pointing out like why are there all these Greek terms that are being used in Sanskrit and it was kind of this mystery of was there some sort of connection between ancient Greek astronomy and astrology and ancient Indian astronomy and astrology but Pingree was the first guy to really bring it together through translating this one text, which is called the Yavana Jataka, and publishing it, and then trying to demonstrate some of the parallels between the the techniques used in that text and some of the techniques that were used in Western astrology in Greek and Latin at the time. Would you say that's an accurate summary up to this yeah, point? That's an accurate summary of what he okay. was trying to do and, and the claims he was making. Yeah. Okay. So. That's become though, and and, and and we should also say too that um, in in an earlier or later uh, article from you have it right there from Astral Omens to what is the actual name of that? So it was his 1970, 1997 book uh, titled "From Astral Omens to Astrology from Babylon to Bikiner. So in the introduction to that, he does say that he found that. Um, the concept of astrology so so strange and um, you know he he uses some derogatory terms I can't remember but it's like you know this is so weird that it would be crazy for more than one culture to have developed this concept and so therefore one culture must have done it and everyone else must have uh, jumped on and imitated it now whether that's right or wrong. Uh, you know, I'm not going to debate. But what I am going to debate is that when that's your attitude, 
your attitude then is there's a one-way transmission and everything you do and everything you look at is passing through the filter of that. And this is important because if you ever study uh, or you ever take a class in a qualitative analysis, these kind of questions and frames can affect the way you perceive data and organize data and what is important to you. Um, it's just like if you were to go through two books and look for everything that was the same, you'd get a list of all the things that were the same, and that'd be really cool. But if you ask the question, well, where are they different? You'd come up with a different list, and you might come up with a different kind of conclusion too. So that, i just like to point out that he was really adamant about that, um, and I think uh, later scholars have softened, and I'm going to try to present like you know a, what I call like a, a softer view of that. Um, but he seemed to be you know really wanting to draw the line down. That I mean, he actually thought the text was a translation from an actual Greek original. Yeah, well, um, he thought it was. He thought there was a Greek text that was written in mm -hmm. probably Alexandria, Egypt, sometime yep. around the first century CE in Greek, yep. and he thought that that text. Was taken um, on a like a trading ship or something from Egypt, from Greek-speaking Egypt, over to the western coast of India, right. where there were these Greek trading colonies that were set up. Because um, sometime around the first century, sailors found that they could use the monsoon winds from India during certain seasons in order to sail directly back and forth from like Egypt to India. Right. And then trade increased in the first and second centuries, back and forth between the Roman Empire and India, basically at this point. And he thought right. one of the things that went over was this Greek text written in the first century. He thought it was translated into Sanskrit in the second century, but that that original translation didn't survive. And instead, what we have is a later version of that text when a later author he thought versified the text and put it into like the form of a poem. Yep. which was a more common um, way to to put like scientific text in order to make them easy to memorize. Yep. Um, but do you let me read the actual quote of what you were sure. saying from him because in this sure. book he doesn't just talk about like one chapter is about the transmission of what he argued was Greek astrology to India, but then the entire book is actually he tries to document all of the different transmissions mm -hmm. of astrology in different cultures like from Mesopotamia to Greece, and then he talks about it going from like the Roman Empire to the Persian and Arabic-speaking world, and then he talks about it going from the Arabic-speaking world to um, to the Latin world in Europe in like the 12th century, and just this bouncing back and forth and this passing back and forth of astrology over the centuries. So what he says, though, and this is the statement that some astrologers sometimes take issue with, is that. The evidence that each of these transmissions was a historical reality rests on three foundations. The direct statements by the recipients concerning the source of their knowledge, the use of transliterated technical terms, and the improbability that complex theories, which, as I would hope all my readers will agree, are invalid as explanations of the world, would be constructed independently in different cultures. Uh, the same general considerations provide the evidence for similar transmissions of astronomy. So not just astrology, but also technical concepts in astronomy as well. So, But you take issue with that statement because he is proceeding with the viewpoint that some of these techniques are so crazy and that astrology itself he doesn't view as legitimate phenomenon, 
So therefore, his argument that two cultures could not have come up with this same crazy concept independently, therefore it must have come up in one place and then been transmitted to another. And you take issue with with that premise? Well, I'm just exposing that premise because that is, again, it will filter, it it will just filter your understanding. Um, But to show how easy some of these concepts can be transmitted, I'm actually remembered to my introduction to astrology, where when I was a child, all I knew was sun sign astrology. That was in the newspaper. It's what my mom read. And one day when I was 12 years old, you know, I was getting a Slurpee at 7-Eleven and I saw in the magazine rack, this uh, astrology magazine, and I opened it up and for the first time saw a chart. And I was like, of course you would use all the planets and not just the sun. Like that is so obvious. Like, why didn't I think of it? And I think any culture and India was one of them for sure that was constantly looking at the sky, was already attributing, um, meaning to uh, star positions and planetary configurations. Um, If whatever, whatever culture hadn't thought of doing a horoscope, you really almost just need one sentence to say, hey, have you thought about like actually doing a little map for when someone was born? And, you know, it just is like, yeah, that's just the natural extension of what we've all been doing. So the fact that it caught on like wildfire and thrived in the two cultures that would have a reason for it to thrive, the Hellenistic Empire and India Empire, you know, makes makes sense to me. You know, it'd be, it'd be very easy for that transmission to happen. Sure. But then that being said, it's like his point I feel like his point is still reasonable, even though I believe in astrology's legitimate phenomenon. I think it's valid for the most part to argue that when it comes to highly specific technical concepts, there are some really complex techniques that are sometimes developed in different cultures that different cultures don't develop those that same exact technique independently. True. But true. usually when it shows up in in two cultures, usually yeah. there was some sort of connection between yes. them because it's yes. so highly specific yes. and highly um, yes. complex. Yes. Okay. Um, so getting back to, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to leave like the kind of religious angle yet because I think one of the reasons, and again, we should probably have a... Um, uh, an Indian on the on the show, but my understanding is part of the pushback from from Indians is their great myths. You know, the Mahabharata, not great myths, their great stories. The Mahabharata and the Ramania both have uh, references to horoscopic things in them, and the dates of those stories do predate, way predate the Yavana Jataka, but or and, modern scholars would say, well, when you analyze the language of those things, the astrology part was added in later. So, um, but I think part of that, uh, part of the, where it comes from of wanting to push these things so far back is that they do have in their national stories, these uh, astrology elements and 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 they're dating them to you know they're like like uh, like many Christians consider the Bible like one thing you know and then Western scholars were like no actually there's all these different layers of Hebrew that at some point was compiled you know the believing person is like nah it's just God's word it is what it is 
um, and you know, scholarship reveals a reveals a different truth. Yeah, I mean, something that nobody and and definitely Pingree didn't dispute, and that there was an understanding as a baseline is that there was an indigenous form of astrology in India that goes back thousands of years and is just as old as any of the other ancient astrological traditions, like the ones from Mesopotamia or from um, Egypt. And that, however, though, is primarily based on the nakshatras, which is like a 27 or 28 sign lunar zodiac. And that seems to be the indigenous astrology of India, where each of those 28 mansions of the moon or 28 signs is connected with a specific fixed star, right. and that there are references to that that go back to whatever it is, like 1000 or 2000 BCE, depending on who you're talking to at the very least. Yeah, at the very least, yeah. Okay, so there's that, and then there's also, but what, one of the issues you do run into is that there are not a lot of advanced, complicated references to astrology in the Vedas, which is the indigenous like religious texts of Hinduism. There may be some passing references to certain things that might sound like that, but there's not like really complicated discussions about astrology in those ancient religious texts. So this is where, and I think a lot of astrologers, uh, a lot of even my um, contemporary uh, American-born Indian astrologers kind of get confused on this because um, the uh, and and why I always call it Indian astrology. Anyone who's followed me for any length of time knows that I prefer the term Indian astrology than Vedic astrology because to me that would be like calling Western astrology biblical astrology. Is there? Can you find some astrology in the Bible? Absolutely. Can you learn how to read a chart from the Bible? No. And as you say, it's the same in the Vedas. You know, it, it, there's references, but you couldn't, uh, you know, at all practice astrology. But where I think it gets confusing on the on the Indian side is you do have this uh, what they call limb of the Veda. You know, Jyotish is considered one of the limbs of the Veda, and one of the earliest texts that even predates the Avanajataka, um, which is the Jyotish Vedanga. Again. That text is not a, to your point, it's not a horoscopic astrology text. It is a text that talks about different uh, timing relationships and how to calculate those things so you can perform your rituals properly. So you're looking at lunar days, you're looking at sun moon angles, you're looking at the nakshatra location of the moon, you're looking at a bunch of things. But again, that was considered essential learning. This, the sky lore was essential learning because you needed it to be able to time the religious rituals. But but in it is not horoscopic astrology. Um, and I think that confuses some people because they've either never looked at the um, Jyotish Vedanga or like me, they were just taught that, oh, it goes back like that. And until I actually looked at the text myself, I just assumed it had horoscope stuff in it, but it, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, like to give an example, one of the things that's cited very frequently is a reference in one of the Vedas to like a, a wheel with 12 spokes mm -hmm. and a question of whether that's referring to a reference to the zodiac in one of the older religious texts. But this question of, uh, or the, one of the points is that even if it is, and it's not like a later insertion or something or a reference to something that's not the zodiac. Right. Um, it doesn't demonstrate the use of like complex 
concepts like dasha periods or aspects or how the 12 houses or so, any of that other complex stuff. Yeah, and we're going to we're going to get into this in a little bit, I know, uh the transmission, but this while while you brought it up, I'll just say I do think this is one area where you can make a decent it's it's beyond the scope I think of our hour, but I think the notion that dividing the sky into 12 segments that that concept may have originated in India and gone up into Mesopotamia um you that you can i think make a case for but again there's a difference between we already know they were dividing the sky into 27 or 28 why not divide the sky into 12 i was just reading the other day that the ancient jain cosmology also talked about uh, 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 the sky as a wheel of with 12 spokes so i mean it's like that notion was was popular for lack of a better word in ancient ancient india um Sure, but, but that, that being is different. Said, that is different than the notion of oh, someone was born at a particular time. Let's get an ascendant. Let's 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 drop a chart. I mean, that being said, the current scholarly consensus about the origins of the twelve sign zodiac is that it was a concept that was developed in Mesopotamia yeah. originally in connection with a bunch of uh, constellations that fall along the ecliptic, and then eventually it got narrowed down to twelve. Yeah, or standardized to twelve signs of thirty degrees each around yeah. the fifth century BCE, and at least in terms of the, the documented evidence, that's like the usual scholarly consensus. Correct, but even in that scholarly evidence, if you if you peer into it, the scholars themselves do mention that it is kind of out of nowhere, you know, because the Mesopotamians had a very uh, different way of looking at the sky, thinking about it, and measuring planets as it moved along it. And then all of a sudden, quote unquote, uh, this like frame of the circle of 12 comes up. And it's it's actually seeing those lines in the in the scholarly stuff. And I think I sent you, or I referenced it actually in my UAC talk. Um, you know, once I read that it came out of nowhere, I'm like, well, is it so far fetched that a culture that was constantly looking at the sky as a wheel that that, that would have transmitted up there? I mean, we know there was trade going way back uh, between Mesopotamia, India, Egypt, and India, Hellenistic Empire, and Roman India. I mean, we know that the trade lines go back before all of this. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's uh, like an area where you know future evidence may may shape up to support that concept of circle and twelve might have uh, might have come up from India. But again, that's maybe, different maybe. than horoscopic astrology. But and we discussed this point in the pre-show chat when we we're warming up and figuring out how to approach <laughs> this whole topic. But one of the things that we talked about was that in terms of like West Western academic scholarship. One of their their basic premise is that we have to attempt to the best of our abilities to um, look at the available evidence and then reconstruct the history and draw conclusions just based on what yep. the available evidence says. And as much as we can, try to avoid making inferences or assumptions right. um, based on a lack of evidence or when we're missing evidence to support a certain conclusion. Right. And that then becomes one of the primary basis is that scholars like Pingree are proceeding upon, yes. which is what texts survive, what yeah. do they say, and then yeah. what, what can we document about the history or reconstruct right. about the history based on that? 
Right. So and, 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 and this and the sky notion of twelve is one of the few places where you can point to an ancient text having it having, you know, mentioned to it that predates the Mesopotamian notion. Well, yeah, possibly it's just that in the Mesopotamian tradition we do have documented evidence of two thousand years of development uh through the survival of those cuneiform tablets and through mm -hmm. um them talking about and documenting in lots of texts the development of the zodiac so that I'm not sure if it's fully accurate to say that it came out of nowhere or that that's usually the perspective well, of I mean, most the of the guy academic who, scholars. Well, I mean, the guy who did his PhD thesis, let me just reach down to, uh, I thought this might come up. Um, I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, if it wasn't the scholars themselves saying, hey, the Zodiac seems to be an odd insertion here, or you know, dividing the sky into twelve. Um, yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about guys like Pingri who read Akkadian and was translating those texts, or like Erica Reiner or other people like that. Not necessarily. Yeah, because what they're doing is that's what they're reading. They're reading Akkadian. They weren't reading the Rig, Rig Veda. They weren't looking for any you know ancient references. Um, I mean, Ping, they Pingri were. Was. Pingree was because well, Pingree's then, first ancient language was Sanskrit. Well, then he missed it because it's not, you know, one of the things that I thought is, well, wait a minute, is this wheel, 12 spokes, blah, 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 is this a metaphor for something else? But then you have a later Veda commenting that it's specifically talking about the sky and there's no like ambiguity. Um, there's no ambiguity in that. And that reference I can give you because I have it on my screen here. But anyway, I mean, I don't want to get bogged down on this little point, but this is one little point that I think there is. <laughs> Um, it's not just circumstantial evidence. There's textual evidence that, at a minimum, it was co-present, or at least the Indians were. You know, maybe so. Maybe the argument would be the Mesopotamians independently. This was something that did the notion of dividing a sky into twelve independently did arise in two places. Um, but I think if push came to shove, India edges out on the timeline in terms of mentioning this. I mean, um, I don't know what the dating is of that text or what the firm timeline is. So I, I'm not willing to concede that we definitely know that the zodiac is older in India, because as far as most of the scholars are concerned, like that's usually pretty solidly agreed on as a uh, Mesopotamian development. Which then, like, I'm not. I'm not even claiming that as like a Western development. I'm just saying that culture is usually attributed that. Um, in the academic scholarship, and there's less evidence for it in the Indian uh, tradition, whereas there's tons of evidence for the nakshatras in the Indian tradition. So that seems very clearly like the indigenous astrology of India that would be not contestable at all in any way and doesn't rely on um, speculation as much. Yeah, it is weird how the nakshatras have kind of held out uh, against any. Uh... Uh, any any tech and held to the test of time, um, but also, you know, Pingree was a history of science guy. He wasn't a mm. religious studies guy, and um, the reason why there's this evidence in Mesopotamia because, as you say, they wrote on clay tablets. Unfortunately, there is an absence of material from India because they wrote on things on materials that did not survive the ravages of time. So I'm not making an argument that because it doesn't exist, it must exist. But even with what we have, 
this notion that this wheel in the sky that the fact that um even the astronomy involved the the notion of a wheel um with the with the polar longitude which is how they used to do indian astrology where you'd draw a line from the north pole to the planet to the ecliptic itself um it goes way back in the religious literature did pingree spend as much time as he should have with that does anyone look at that you know it's it's really only relatively recently that i think these passages have been decoded and then you know ancient comment like i say it's the atarva veda that then actually specifically says this relates to time sure but in terms of i mean in terms of the chronology of let's just say the established academic like western chronology of we know that there are birth charts in Mesopotamia that use the 12 sign zodiac starting in the 5th century BCE and going through to like the 1st century CE. And then when it comes to the Greek texts, we don't start seeing texts on um, natal astrology and horoscopic astrology, which we'll have to define at some point mm -hmm. starting until the 1st century BCE. So we don't think that that concept where astrologers were using birth charts with houses, uh, planets, signs, and aspects until like the first century BC in the West. And then we have like Western astrologers with datable texts and horoscopes during that time period. And then the question starts becoming, when are the earliest datable Indian texts on astrology that are written in Sanskrit that are also doing natal astrology? And then the issue becomes that According to Pingree and some of those scholars, we don't have texts like that until at the earliest, like the second century through like the seventh century and, and so on. Right. So that creates a sort of chronology there in terms of what we, at least what they think they know in terms right. of datable material on the surviving texts that we right. have to, to base our conclusions on. Right. But, but all that is separate from the talk about. Do we divide the sky into twelve uh, equal segments? But yes, I mean that is that is the Western scholarship. Uh, sure, assessment. well, just in terms yeah. of starting to move more into the discussion yeah, about what is absolutely. the yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff that we have available evidence for to talk about versus yes. what are things that okay. we okay, yeah, got it. Okay, so if that's true, one of the other problems that we then run into when we start talking about dating Indian texts. And one of the objections that's sometimes raised is um, there are certain texts in the Indian astrological tradition like Parashara that were written under the premise that they were revealed by an ancient sage thousands and thousands of years ago. And because it's tied in with the religious tradition, sometimes that's taken very literally and very seriously as if this is actually a text that was revealed by an ancient to an ancient sage, mm -hmm. you know, five or ten thousand years ago or or whatever. Right. Um, instead of when it comes to somebody like Pingree, he tried to narrow down and, and date that text to I think like sometime between like the fifth and the seventh century or fifth and the eighth right. century or something like that. Is that yep. more or yep. less correct? Yep. Yep. Based on the oldest surviving manuscripts and based on what other authors it mentions. Quote whether they're yep. Yeah. Yeah. And when they lived, so that you yeah. can kind of like indirectly try to date the text right. based on those references or based on the context. And to approach this from another angle, I read an essay from someone that I consider a believer 
And when I mean a believer, I mean someone who's going to say Indian astrology goes back 10,000 years or, you know, whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, but even from that point of view, what the book we have today that's called Parashara is not the Parashara that Vara Mahira was saying was like a lost work when, when he was writing, you know? So it's like what we have now, it has the same name and author, um, but it's clearly... Uh, especially the the versions that are circulating now, and there are several versions that are circulating, and they don't. Some have chapters that others don't have, and blah blah blah. And you can clearly see that it's been added to and and modified over over time. So, yeah, there is that notion where um, I, I see it's seemed to be more with late twentieth and now early twenty first century. Um, Indian astrologers, at least the American Indian astrologers, where they just will like take something like, oh, this is thousands of years old. Just like Western astrologers will say, oh, astrology is based on thousands of years of empirical evidence. Right. You know, it's just we're taught things from teachers and then we just assume that's the case because we're not historians. Uh, we don't we don't know what we don't know. Um, but yeah. Yeah. But so that complicates things because it's like yeah. we have that we have um Indian astrologers like Varahamira, who uh because he was a famous astronomer and astrologer and made like references and astronomical observations and, and other things, we can date him really securely to like the sixth century. Yeah, five fifty was when his yeah, about five fifty. Five fifty. But then when it comes to other texts like Parashara, um you while ping while scholars like Pingree will use the same same techniques to date him and, and mm -hmm. to put that around that time period yeah. or, or not long after that. Yeah. Um because it says that it was revealed to an ancient sage thousands of years ago, some astrologers will take that very literally right. and say that this text is like ten thousand years old. Yep. Um, which then complicates discussions about like trying to say how old are different traditions and when did different yeah. traditions start and things like that. And and this is an issue, of course, uh, a, a worldwide issue because there are certainly works attributed to Aristotle that weren't written by Aristotle. I mean, that you know, this is the notion of attributing your work to an ancient author goes back to the older I can make it, you know, the the the, the more well received it was. There probably was, because Varmahira mentions a lot of of texts that don't survive, but like I say, what he, you know, had heard about is, and what we have as Parashara, you know, to appear to be two different things. I, I would argue, you know, definitely later. Okay, but um, so it's like, yeah, we have the same problem in the Western tradition. If you go back and read ancient authors like Vedius Valens, he's drawing on an earlier text that was written by somebody probably around the first century BCE in Egypt. But the author of the text, instead of putting their own name on it, they Attributed it to like an ancient Egyptian pharaoh named Nechepso. And then so you have a guys like a century or two later, like Balans, who actually believed that ascription right. and thought he was drawing on a text that was written by an ancient Egyptian, like wise pharaoh who was really into astrology. But we today, like 2,000 years later, generally don't um, take that as seriously or take that ascription as literally that right. the Nechepso and Pedasiris text was definitely like written by. This ancient Egyptian pharaoh. Um, so that's one of the complications that sort of comes up in this discussion. I feel like, though, yes. uh, because of some of those descriptions. 
Yes. Okay. So, um, where, so what it really comes down to, though, let's get into the actual text of the Avnajataka. What it comes down to is that Pingri did publish this translation of the text in 1978. Um, it's available to read. And if astrologers are really curious about this question, then the best thing that they can do is like try to get a copy of the Avnajataka, try to check it out from like a library or whatever, and actually read through this text. And what you'll see, because what Pingri did is he wrote, he did in the first volume, it's two volumes. In the first volume, it's just all his reconstruction of the Sanskrit text, where he took all the surviving manuscripts that he could find, and then he tried to reconstruct the archetype of what he thought the original text was. Then in volume two, the first half of it is he translates the entire Sanskrit text into English. And then in the second part of volume two, he does a whole English commentary where he'll go line by line through the text and he'll um, talk about what the text is saying in Sanskrit, and then he'll compare it to what Western astrologers were doing around the same time period in Greek and Latin and Arabic. And let me just add at this point, uh, because I won't really be able to show you an example of this because I didn't. I just realized I, I didn't prepare for that piece. Um, but I'm not the first to notice this to either. And that is that when you have a non-astrologer drawing these parallels, they do sometimes equate things that an astrologer would not equate. So I have noticed sometimes he'll be like, oh, this is just like what we see in Paulus, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll pull Paulus off the shelf and I'll read it and I'll be like, wait a minute. I mean, they're sort of talking about transits, but their approach is totally different. So um, it pays if you also have access to like the Ben Dykes translations and, and some of um, some of the other uh, Project Hindsight translations. So you can actually see was Pingree right? You know, sometimes he is, but sometimes he's seeing a connection there that an astrologer wouldn't because we know the techne of our craft uh, more so than he did. Sure. I mean, and he, yeah, that's one of the things that's unfortunate about his commentary because, on the one hand, his commentary is really useful and sometimes he explicates what the Sanskrit text is saying because the Sanskrit yeah. is sometimes very concise and it's mm -hmm. like packing a lot of information into a very short, sometimes somewhat cryptic line because the original text was written in the form of a poem or a verse. Right. Um, so sometimes he'll like expand on it, explain what it means, which is actually helpful. And then he'll Start talking about what Western astrologers did, and he'll point out instances where they were doing the same thing, or he'll point out instances where they were completely doing the different thing. Unfortunately, one of the things that makes Pingree's commentary not super useful is that when he would quote the Western astrologers, he would quote them in their original language instead of translating it into English. <laughs> right. So yeah. What you end up with then is like a long quote written in ancient Greek from like Vadius Valens, or he'll say, yep. and Firmicus Maternus did something similar, and then he'll mm -hmm. quote Firmicus Maternus in Latin, or then he'll say, um, or this doctrine shows up in Abu Mashar, and then he'll quote Abu Mashar in Arabic. So it's like, unless you know ancient Greek, Latin, Arabic, and maybe Sanskrit, like his commentary does not become super super as useful as it might be or as effective as it might be in either demonstrating the similarities or the differences in the two astrologies and i think um thankfully 
those texts that he's quoting from are available in English now. So you can't, at least he does give you the passage to look at, you know, so you can track it down. It would have been nicer if we didn't have to go through that extra step uh, and have it self-contained. But yeah, we need, we need to do that. I think uh, in Ben Dykes's uh, introduction to Dorotheus, he also noticed this, that in the commentary, because because Pingree wasn't a practicing astrologer, you know, what he thought was the same and what he thought was different doesn't always like match up with what we would think. So sure. So let's talk about this and let's talk about the text and let's talk about some of the similarities and some of the differences and get okay. into that because this All is right. what it comes down to is when you're reading through the Jataka, one of the questions, there's a few questions, but two of them are one, does this text demonstrate in any way that there's some sort of Western and specifically Greek influence that's coming in as a foreign influence into this Indian text that was written in Sanskrit? Right. And one of the ways that that comes up that Pingri argued, I thought somewhat persuasively in the instances where it does come up, is he points out that there's sometimes Greek words that are actually embedded in the Sanskrit text, where the Sanskrit text of the Avnajataka will just be talking in Sanskrit using normal Sanskrit words, and then sometimes it'll stop and say, and the Yavanas um, use this concept, which they call this in their language, and then there'll be a Greek word that's been transliterated into Sanskrit. Um, and what What's a good way to define transliteration? Is there a good like analogy to use of what like a transliterated term is uh, I'm like? I'm trying to think of like one we commonly might use. Um, yeah, it's like if you because there's different alphabets. So how do we establish that? First, there's different alphabets. We use the like the in English we use like the Roman sort of alphabet. I mean, if you've ever like seen a mantra written in English, that's transliterated from Sanskrit. You're not seeing it in the Sanskrit le- letters. You're you're seeing it, you know, in English, trying to give you an approximate pronunciation uh, because Sanskrit has like 50 letters and we only have like 26 or whatever in English. So, um, right. or or like in, in Greek, like Greek yeah. has its own alphabet. So, right. and then that alphabet makes certain sounds. Right. And sometimes you can take those letters and then pick out the letter in like let's say English in our alphabet yes. that makes approximately the same sound. So for example, the letter omega in Greek which looks almost like a w makes like an o sound as and is sometimes transliterated into English as like a long o. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. That's good. So that's good. that's that's, a, that's our best attempt to yeah. define transliteration. So, so what right we have bef- is Okay, go on. What, what we have is the same thing sometimes in some of these instances where there's a Greek word that must have been originally originally written in the in the Greek language, but then in Sanskrit they took and tried to make a similar sounding word using their um, alphabet, or at least that's Pingree's argument, which I think I feel like is pretty not disputable. Although sometimes this point is disputed and people question whether. They really are transliterations. Yes, and there are also um, there are also a, a bunch of analog words that, because there is somewhere in ancient history a connection between Greek and Sanskrit, there are words that sound the same in both languages, um, and it may point to this earlier root. Also, 
there's a lot of uh, we tend to as history of astrologers we we stick to astrology books and we don't read a bunch of other things like the history of mathematics and the history of this that and the other thing um, and sometimes some of these word mysteries become fleshed out when you when you approach it uh, more specifically but I think before we actually jump into the text I just want to frame it as you know Pingree presented that you know his notion was like we said earlier that this was a greek text uh probably written in alexandria brought into india and then translated into india but later right. scholarship uh bill mack in the last few years has made an argument that this is probably an indigenous book that the yamna jataka was probably written originally in india but or and India was filled with Indo-Greek uh, city-states at the time uh, that this, we believe this was allegedly written. So you had Greeks bringing their culture and knowledge and stuff, and they were intermarrying, and they were in India, and they eventually get totally absorbed into India. But uh, the, 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 the modern take is that this, as, you'll, as we'll see as we go through it, I mean, it's so Indianized, it makes sense that it would have been written in India. And then the question is, you know, how much Greek astrology is in it and how much Indian astrology and how much did the Indians learn from the Greek? And I guess that's what we're going to go on to now. Yeah. I mean, and Bill Mack's new scholarship over the past decade is really important because now he's like a Sanskrit scholar like Pingree was, but he's critically examining some of Pingree's conclusions and in some yep. instances challenging some of them and others he still upholds to some extent. So, um, People can find his work because he's written like two or three really important papers yeah. on this. But one of the most important ones is titled "The Date and Nature of Spujivaja's Yavna Jataka Reconsidered in Light of Some Newly Discovered Materials." So that may not come up with a great result because obviously people trying to spell that what I just <laughs> attempted to pronounce it's not going to be very successful. But his website is billmack.com, and then on his um, blog from January 2015. He has a blog post titled "Update on My Work on the Yavna Jataka" that has um, the titles of, of some of the papers and stuff he's done in this area, which are important to check out. Yeah. So the main thing though that he said was Pingree thought there were two texts that there was originally the transliteration, the translation of a Greek text into Sanskrit, which happened around the second century. He thought, and then he thought a century later that there was an, a second author who versified the text and that it was the versified form of the text is what we have today and he thought that in that interim period of a century between those two texts that the second author who versified it took some additional liberties to indianize the text and to insert some indigenous concepts or something like that was what he assumed yeah um bill mack has argued that Pingree's dating was was potentially wrong, and that the dating for the text is much wider, anywhere from as early as 22 CE to as late as the seventh century. I think he said sixth or seventh century CE, and that what we have is actually the original text. That there was no earlier text, but instead this was the first one that was written. So that there was only a single author who was the author of this text. I think is part of his argument. And I brought up the Indo-Greek, so it would make sense. Like, well, why would this even be called the Yavana Jataka? And that's because the Yavanas were a, like we might say, 
African American or you know Irish American or whatever. You know the the um, the Yavanas at the Yavanas is is a word used all throughout Indian history, and it means all different kinds of things. But uh, according to the Greeks in India by George Woodcock and other such things. Um, at this particular time, it was it was a word referencing the Indo Greeks. So that would be the Greek people living in India and assimilating into India, as you can tell from this from this text. Right. So there were Greek people living in India that adopted Indian culture and Indian um, religion. Yeah, like adopted Hinduism, and so. He thought that this text still, even though he challenged some of, even though Bill Mack challenged some of Pingree's conclusions, he still thought that the text represented a synthesis of some Greek astrology, some Hellenistic astrology, and some indigenous Indian astrology yep. into that created a, a unique um, synthesis or a unique like byproduct. Yep. Okay. So. One of the things before we move on that I want to touch on is just giving some examples of some of the specific transliterations, because even though we spent a little time torturously attempting to <laughs> explain that concept, like sure. you really have to yeah. have it um, in front of you in order to see, to understand what that actually means. Right. right. So um, let me see if I can share my screen where I've written down some of the transliterations that Pingree gave. And this is from his book, From Astral Omens to Astrology. But he, this is also documented in the Yavna Jataka and in his commentary. So to give some examples of some of the transliterations, um, one of the Sanskrit terms that's used at one point in the Yavna Jataka is anathara in Sanskrit. Which he says is a transliteration of the Greek term, which is spelled and I guess pronounced anaphora. And so, um, yeah, anaphora in Greek astrology is for a, a succeedant house. It's like the technical term to use to, to refer to a succeedant house. Um, elsewhere, he points out that in Sanskrit, the term apoklima is used, and this is the same term that's used. In Greek, apoklima to refer to a cadent house, like the third house, sixth house, ninth house, or twelfth house. And the term is still used. Is that term still used in Indian astrology to this day, apoklima? No, not. I mean, conceptually, not really, because we org in modern uh, Indian astrology, we we think of angles, uh, but we then think of trinal houses. Um, so, but for some of the houses, they're still used. So, can but they're not. Yeah, I mean, can, in terms can, of like, yeah, I mean, angle. I mean, you know, I'm reading in Indian English, so I don't know what the what like the Hindi term would be. Um, but that concept of angularity being important that definitely carries over. But that notion of um, sort of the strength notion that I was taught in Hellenistic astrology with those three things doesn't seem to have uh, survived, or it, it just it's just thought of differently in Indian astrology. Yeah, well, I mean, it's two thousand years later, so right, I'm exactly. Sure, there's been some changes, but just in terms of the Avnajataka itself, other transliterations are it uses the in Sanskrit it uses the word kendra to refer to the four angular houses, and this is a transliteration. Pingree says of a Greek the Greek term kendron, 
So see how it's like it's the same, but it's like subtly different. Kendra, Kentron, right? Yeah, that's like, that's like a good example of a transliteration where you're taking a Greek word and then moving it so that it now kind of obeys the rules of Sanskrit and have an A sound at the end. Right. Um, but that sometimes in the process it like changes it slightly, but you can still tell how it's essentially the same word. In your rereading of the first chapter, when it mentioned that. Did it say what the significance of it was, or was it just labeling different categories of things? Yeah, I mean, it said it referred to the four angular houses. So let's pull. Let me. Let me. I'll oh read yeah, yeah. The... Actually, I'm. I just found. I've just found it. Yeah. So what no, page, it, it what has to do with. Uh, so I'm looking at page eight, uh, sentence ninety four, where it's referring to the uh, parts of life, actually. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share. I, I think it might have been referred to earlier. I'm going to share because I want this to be tied in with the actual text and based on a discussion of the actual text as much as possible yeah. as we move into this yeah. section. I'm going to share yeah. for the video version um, just a screen with some of the lines that we're actually reading from Pingree's translation. And I think that's okay because it's for the purpose of education, we're going to use like only like one percent of the overall text and still encourage people to go out and, and read the text and get it yourself, whether it's checking out from a library or what have you. Um, so yeah, let's find the passage because what it does is the text opens with a discussion about the signs of the zodiac and some of their qualities, their assignment to body parts, and their assignment to different areas. Yes. So eventually once it gets through that, it does introduce the concept of like the sign, the rulers of the zodiac, the planets that rule certain signs of the zodiac, where it gives the exact same scheme as the Western tradition. So, um, I should point out actually in the previous section at the beginning where it goes through the signs of the zodiac, it also gives the assignment of the body parts in the way that is exactly the same in the Western tradition. So, it says you start with Aries is the head. Yep. And then you move your way down, and like Taurus is the neck, and Gemini is the arms, all the way till you get to Pisces, and that's the feet. So the there's cosmic, a- uh, the cosmic human being, or the cosmic being embodied in the sky, is a common motif um, in different cultures. Definitely was present, I believe, in Mesopotamian culture. It was present in Indian culture. Um, I just want to clarify that because I can I can feel the Indians saying, "Wait a minute, we can push that that belief back way, way, way back." And yes, they can push it way, way back. But um, it's yeah, I mean, there's different cultural motif. ideas of like the cultural or the universal man or what yeah. have you, and that shows up in Western yeah. tradition as well. But specifically here, as a as like a technical concept in astrology, what we're seeing here is a parallel in terms of assigning mm-hmm. Aries to the head and Taurus mm-hmm. to the neck and going th- through. So there, yeah. at, the, at the very least, we have to say, even if we're not even making any arguments about who got that from where at this stage, we would just have to note that in this text from, let's just say hypothetically, it's from the second century in Sanskrit, that they have this concept in Indian astrology. And then yeah. we know in, also in like Vedius Valens, for example, he talks about the same concept in Greek. Roughly contemporaneously at the same time. Yep. Okay. So um, we have that. Then it goes into um, it does talk about the rulers of the signs of the zodiac, which is it's actually a really interesting section. So it says, "Wait, what number are you at?" 
So chapter one, um, passage 28, which is on page okay, three. Okay, got it, got it. I'm right there, I'm right there. Let me zoom in on that. So it says that um, 28. It says, for those who are authorities say that this world of the immovable and the movable has its essence in the sun and the moon. In them are seen its coming into being and its passing away. Even in the circle of the constellations does it have its essence in, in them. So in the next line, line 29, it says, the solar half, and then Pingri puts in parentheses of the zodiac, begins with Magha, and Pingri notes in parentheses that this is the first nakshatra in Leo. Mm-hmm. And then it says, the other half, the lunar, with Sarpa, which Pingri says is the last nakshatra in Cancer. The sun gives the zodiacal signs to the planets in order, and the lunar signs are assigned in reverse order. So here what it's saying is it's doing that division between Leo and Cancer, and then it's saying like that the moon gets assigned to Cancer, and the sun gets assigned to Leo, and then the rest of the planets are assigned either flanking out from the sun in zodiacal order or um, flanking out from the moon in reverse zodiacal order uh, on the other side. Yep. Okay. So, um, oh yeah, so it goes on and it says, I'm going to skip over, well, no, I'll not skip over, I'll read the rest. It says in line 30, others, however, state that every odd sign is solar and every um, even sign is lunar. Each solar sign is masculine and hard, and each lunar sign is feminine and soft. Um, this is really interesting to me because this was a debate in the Western astrological tradition as well, which is that there were two sort of traditions about assigning sect to the signs of the zodiac. And in one tradition, you divide the zodiac in half. And I believe Hephaestio mentions this tradition where starting with the sun and going forward to the next six signs five or six signs, you have a solar half of the zodiac. And then um, starting in Cancer and then going over to Aquarius, you have a lunar side of the zodiac. Um, but then there were other astrologers that assigned it based on the masculine and feminine signs so that all the odd signs were seen as, as um, solar or as uh, diurnal, and all of the, feminine, uh, the even signs were seen as feminine or nocturnal. So here again, we have a parallel in doctrines where the assignment of sect of day and night to the signs of the zodiac is coming up and being discussed in the same way in both traditions, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of interesting. I don't know something going on. Maybe, maybe not. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe some connection. Um, okay. So then it keeps going on line thirty-two, and it says, "As the sun takes Leo because of its qualities, and the moon Cancer." So they give the remaining signs from their own lordships to those of the planets in direct and reverse order, respectively. In order, these planets are Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Therefore, they are said to be each the lord of two houses, one lunar and one solar. Okay, so I know this is taking us a while to get, but (laughs) important because what we have there is the introduction of the basic sign of the basic premise of the rulership of the different signs of the zodiac using the traditional rulership scheme. And this is the same as the traditional rulership scheme in the Western tradition. So again, we have like a parallel where they're using the exact same rulership scheme, and we can kind of establish that all of their factors about transmission aside, that for some reason in both the Greek and the Sanskrit tradition, they're using the same scheme and the same quasi-rationale for that scheme at the same time. Right? 
Yep. Okay. So then it goes on, and um, then it starts talking about dividing the signs into different subcategories. One of the subcategories that it talks about really early on is dividing the signs into thirds, which it calls in Sanskrit drakanas. And Pingree notes that this seems to be a transliteration of the Greek term dekanoi, which is where our term decan comes from. So basically, it's the term for the decans, and it's just been transliterated from Greek into Sanskrit as drakana. Okay, still with me? Still with you. All right, so then it keeps going and it talks about other subdivisions of the signs, including. Um, it refers to Dwadashamshas, which I don't know if that's more arguable, but Pingree says that that's a transliteration of, or translation maybe, of the Greek term dodecatomoria, which means 12th part. I think that is a bit pushing because it is the, I mean, that would, you'd have to argue that they didn't have a word for 12. Um, right. So I think that some of his, some of these are a little weaker than others, and I think he just you know got carried away. And every time he saw a parallel, he he pulled it up. But that's probably, I mean, twelfth yeah. division. It, it, that's just that is Sanskrit. I mean, that is you'd have to say, oh, they didn't have a number for they didn't have a word for twelve. Yeah, sure. And yeah. and to be fair, I don't know. In that instance, he may just yeah. be noting the parallel of that. That's the parallel concept in oh. Western. Good point. Dodecamor- is, instead yeah. of saying that that's a transliteration, but it's Correct. just tricky because he's. Using yes. the same um, same way to like note it right. each time, right? Um, okay, so he just keeps going through subdivisions, and I don't want to get stuck on this. But we should say that I mean, right away it goes into the divisions of two, seven, nine, twelve. Yeah, 60, so it has. So let's note know. the ones where there's a crossover and the ones where there's not. So. The twelfth parts, of course, are definitely famously in the Western tradition as well in Hellenistic astrology. Um, those actually supposedly go back to the Mesopotamian tradition because apparently there's some cuneiform tablets that have because the cuneiform tablets they have the twelve signs of the zodiac since the fifth century BCE, and then somewhere in those texts they also start subdividing the signs into twelve equal subdivisions of like two and a half degrees as well. So that could have, you know, come from the Mesopotamian tradition, and then also gets passed off to Sanskrit and Greek, and doesn't necessarily have to be a Greek concept right. sent directly to Sanskrit. Um, but other subdivisions in this text it uses, as we talked about, the decans or the drakanas, which are a division of the signs into three parts. So that at least conceptually is similar or the same. What are the other subdivisions that it uses? Uh, seventh, so what we call Septamshas, the ninth division of Amshas, um, the twelve. It also has the Horas, which is a division of two. the signs into two. Yeah, the Hora. I think Hephaestus does mention that, though. I think Hephaestus has a okay. division into two. Um, but the, other than him, is that utilized anywhere in the Greek tradition? Um, I don't know, but okay. he's usually drawing on earlier sources like Dorotheus, so it's not something that he invented in the fifth century necessarily. It's something he's probably drawing on an earlier Greek tradition. 
So the two that usually are, are traditionally said to be, and I think Pingree says in his commentary, we don't have any Western equivalent for. Um, he does mention the Trimshamshas, which he says is the equivalent of the terms because it's a division of the signs into five, and that is common in the Hellenistic tradition where they have the so-called terms or bounds. But the two subdivisions that usually are thought to be unique here are the Navamshas, which is the division of the sign into nine parts, and then the Septamshas, which is the division into seven parts. And the terms are standardized, which I found very interesting when I first read this book. Um, so it's it's a pattern that repeats. Right. Um, yeah, so it's not any term system. It's not like the Egyptian term. So even right. if conceptually it's an it's an uneven division of the signs into five parts, it's not. But it's a that system. same uneven. Uh, it's not. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean that comes up a lot here in this text where there's something that's like conceptually similar, like a division, an uneven division of the sign into five parts, but then the actual specifics are, are different. Like there's been a change. Like that's a recurring theme throughout that this text. And I don't in some instances know how to explain that. And that's one of the great mysteries of this text is why is there this weird overlap of some sort of conceptual similarity, but then the actual specifics being somewhat different. Right. Well, you know, that could be pointing to some indigenous work. It could be pointing to uh, the argument I make, where I think there was an early, early transmission, you know, from Mesopotamia straight down mm -hmm. uh, to India. Um, I mean, if we had a time machine, the answer is probably there's an amalgam of ideas circulating and influencing each other. I mean, even, you know, Pingree in the introduction to the volume one of this book, which is the Sanskrit text, he goes, you know, no doubt ideas were whipping back and forth. And, right. and pinging off each other. Um, but yeah, there are some odd uh, things in here like that. Okay. Okay, um, go on. So is that good for subdivisions? Yeah, I think that's good. Okay, so let's move on. Eventually, uh, a few passages later, after it gets done with this section, it introduces for the first time the concept of the houses or the 12 places. So um, here it says, in chapter one, passage 48 or sentence 48, it says, the ascendant, which is the first sign, they call Hora, the fourth from it, Hippaka. One also finds it called Rastala, uh, the place of water, the place of the house, and the place of increase. So all through this, Pingree's putting in parentheses that when he says they call it Hora, he points out that this is a transliteration of the Greek term, which is literally spelled and pronounced the same way. Hora, which is like omega, rho, alpha. Now, this is another word that is, um, there is a Sanskrit word, I believe, called like, oh, jeez. Oh, I thought I had it on a slide so I could actually pull it up, but I, as I was scrolling through, it's, it's, it's not. But that may also be a weak case. There actually may, there's a Sanskrit word very similar to Hora. It's almost like Hora is an abbreviation of it. Or maybe because it, it uh, an abbreviation of it resembled the Greek, they used it. But that may be that may not be the best case of a of a borrowed word. But anyway, go on. And it, and it might not be if not within the context of all of the other transliterations it uses for the other houses, which are more clearly, arguably Greek. 
Yeah. But anyways, the term hora in Greek means hour, and it's sometimes used in the Greek texts like Valens as an abbreviation for the full term for the first house, which is and the full term for the ascendant, which is hour marker, which is horoscopos. So the first part of that is hora, which means hour, and then scopos means like marker. Um, anyway, so they're saying that the first sign, one of the things that's interesting to me from my perspective about this is that it very quickly defines the houses in terms of the signs. And so it's it's using whole sign houses like right from the start. Yes. Uh, is a really interesting point here that the yeah. it says the ascendant is the first sign. Yeah. Uh, so that's you not know, like that's not a controversial in Indian astrology. Like that's not blowing anybody away who's like an Indian astrologer. But from a Western perspective, where we still sometimes have these debates, these stupid debates about whole sign houses and like how old it is or how far go- back it goes or whether texts are taking it for granted or whether they should be defining it. Here, at least in this text, it's it's pretty straightforward in deci- defining the first house as the first sign. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no ambiguity, and there really hasn't been any ambiguity uh, in the Indian tradition. Where they've um, been using whole sign houses as like the primary system yeah. for the past 2,000 years? Yeah. Okay, so that's the first house. Then it says the fourth house, the fourth from it, so the fourth sign from the first sign, it calls Hippaka, and then Pingree puts in parentheses that this is some sort of almost transliteration of the Greek term hupogion, which means subterraneous or like under the earth, which is interesting because then the the Yavanajatic itself goes on here and it says one also finds it called Rastala, which Pingree says in parentheses means hell, which is interesting because that's like the underworld, and that's probably part of where they're getting that from. Is like the fourth house was called the subterraneous place in Hellenistic astrology, but then um, you know maybe there was some other underlying concept of like the underworld. Uh, anyways, but it goes on and it says the it's the place of water, the place of the house, and the place of increase. So we all know that the f- fourth house is commonly associated with the home and the living situation in Western astrology. So we have an interesting like parallel right there. Mm-hmm. What about water? Does that show up in the Western tradition? Um, I don't know. I was trying to figure okay. out that if there was any right. parallel. Uh, so the next line it goes on. It says the seventh place from the ascendant, the descendant, is called Jamitra, uh, which Pingree is saying is must be a transliteration of the Greek term diametros, which is the term for an opposition. It's a, a diameter or an opposition, and that would be because um, the seventh house opposes the ascendant. But what's interesting is it says, so the seventh place from the ascendant, the descendant, is called Jamitra in the language of the Greeks. So, so let's text, pause right here. So whenever okay. I see Greeks in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's translating Yavana, and this might mean Indo-Greeks, and it may be referring to dialect, not necessarily some formal Greek. Could be formal Greek, but again, uh, there's a difference between, in my mind, between Yavana and Greek. Um, yeah, and so this is where, because the text is called the Yavana Jataka, so it's Yavana, whatever. We're defining that as, and then Jataka, which means like natal astrology, or Pingri sometimes uses the condensed term horoscopy right. uh, for that term, but Jataka is basically like natal astrology or birth chart astrology. Um, but the term Yavana means like foreigner, 
and it has specific context depending on when it's used and where, where sometimes it can refer to specific foreigners, which Pingree is basically saying in this context, it clearly means Greeks or people that are using the Greek language. And and I'm and I am gonna would argue that it's the Indo-Greeks who are using the Greek language in India. But let's continue. And I, and I mean that that's yeah. that would be fine. I mean yeah. I don't care yeah. what Greek you know it, is using it. But the point is just that it's clearly because it, it's not just saying that this is a foreign concept. So it says in the language of the Avanas, but it's actually in the text itself using transliterations that are clearly coming from Greek. And that's where Pingree has a good argument: is that the text is clearly saying this is coming from somebody, but then the technical terms that are using are sometimes Greek. Here. Yeah, and I, I don't think anyone is is arguing um, that point. It's just what what gets left off the argument is the word Jataka. In other words, this book only makes sense if it's as a category. If there were other Jatakas, um, and that's that. You know, we this appears to be the earliest surviving text we have, so I can't take the argument further than that. But it implies that, oh, yes, you want to read about the Yavana Jataka, here's this. You want to read about the Blavity Blah Jataka, there's this over here. In other words, it wouldn't have made, to me, even just calling the book this indicated that there were other things to compare it to. Go on. Okay. Um and, but so Pingree translates the title as like horoscopy or natal astrology of the Greeks, mm-hmm. Yavana Jataka. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let me go back to the passage where it's talking about because it's introducing basically the concept of the houses and it's starting with the four angular houses. So it's, it introduced the seventh house, then it goes on and it says, The tenth from the ascendant, the midheaven, they say, is the mezerana. And Pingree puts in parentheses that the Greek term for this is mesoronima, which means literally midheaven or like middle of the sky, middle of the heavens. And so he's pointing out again that they're using a transliterated term where it becomes in Sanskrit, where mesoronima in Greek becomes mesorana in Sanskrit. Um, all right, so then it keeps going. It says, Those who are experts in horoscopy call these four signs the katralogna. Which Pingree puts in the parentheses means fourfold ascendant, or the Lagna Katstaya, which Pingree says means square of the ascendant. One finds that the place of the moon and its square are called Menyaiva uh, among the Greeks. And Pingree puts in parentheses that Menyaiva seems to be either a transliteration or a transliteration of the Greek term Menaios, which means. Like lunar or connected with the moon or something like that. Okay, so um, continuing on, it says in passage 51 the fourth place from the first they call the quartile, the eighth, death. One finds that the fifth is the simple trine. And Pingree says in Sanskrit that the term for trine here is trichona, which he says is a transliteration, I guess, of what he thinks is the Greek term trigonon. Which means just trine or triangle. And then he says, and then the text goes on and says the ninth is the trine of the trine. So, one of the things that's really interesting to me here in the text at this point is it's defining the houses when it first introduces them 
It introduces the angular houses first, which is common because that's also the foundation in the Western tradition of the 12 houses, the four angles. But then it's defining a lot of the houses in terms of the aspect that the house has to the ascendant, um, which is interesting because that's also what authors like Formicus Maternus were doing is when they introduce the houses, as they say, you know, the, the seventh house opposes the first house, or the tenth and the fourth house square to the first house, or the fifth and the ninth house are seen as positive houses because they have trines with the first house, and so on and so forth. And we see a similar sort of logic kind of happening here. Would you agree? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're reading more into the description than is actually there because what first strikes me is that it's just drawing relation. And this is the way we think in Indian astrology. We think of like how things are related to other things. So the fourth place from the first is called a quartile. And that could mean the fourth place from any place because right, because otherwise you're repeating the definition from above. So this seems to be teaching and you can count four places from any place and you're going to call that a quartile. Uh, but then and quartile also is Pingree's translation. It's like an older term for square. And then, but then to kind of counteract my point here, then says the eighth death. Well, the eighth house we're taught is the house of life, therefore the house of death. Uh, one finds that the fifth is a simple trine. Yep, because it's a trine from the first, and the ninth is the fifth from the fifth. So it's almost very, and this is the way Indians think. So really, even in this very early text, you have this sort of compound derivative house style thinking uh, being taught. Sure. Uh, so let's see, it goes on in line 52. It says, they say that the sixth, which gives evil, is the satkona, and Pingree says sextile, which I actually don't understand why it would be associating the sixth with the sextile. The third is the duskakaya. Do you know that term? No. I mean- okay. It's a mild Dustana house, but that just I'd have to look that up in my Sanskrit dictionary. Maybe it's connected with that. Um, then it goes on. It says they call the eleventh the auspicious in every way, and the twelfth the place of motion. So is that, then, is that similar to Greek astrology? Is the twelfth the place of motion? I mean, calling the eleventh house auspicious is definitely uh, similar to the Greek tradition because the eleventh mm -hmm. is treated as a very positive house. That's like the joy of Jupiter. Um, but calling the twelfth the place of motion, I don't fully understand. Except that the only way I could maybe understand that is the twelfth is sometimes treated as a place that has to do with travel and foreign places, as all of the cadent houses are, because it's moving away from the stability of the ascendant, and right. the planets in the twelfth are literally traveling away from the angles. Yep. All right. So it goes on, and it says they say that a Catervalagna sign, which Pingree puts in parentheses, means cardian or angle, is a kendra. And then he puts in parentheses that it's just translating, literating the Greek term kentron here. The next group is a panephora. And Pingree puts in parentheses that this is just a transliteration of the Greek term epinephora, which is the Greek term for a succedent house. It means like post ascension or succedent, that which follows after something. Because the succedent houses follow after the angular houses. And then the text, the Avanajataka, goes on and it says the third category is apoclima, 
which Pingree points out is just a straight transliteration of the Greek term apoklima, which means a declining or a cadent place. So that refers to the third, sixth, ninth, or twelfth, because those houses are moving or falling or declining away from the angular houses. And then the text finishes that passage and says, this is the threefold designation of the ascendant. So um, that's really interesting. So what's important here to me is one, there's a notable uptick in the text at this point of references to what they say or what the Yavanas say about mm-hmm. this doctrine, as well as a noticeable uptick in using transliterated terms. So it's not just like attributing these doctrines to somewhere else, it's also using transliterated Greek terms that sometimes like are not even that different, that haven't transformed that much. Like apoklima is still basically the same. Or um, even like kentron, for example, showing up as kendra is not that different. Or epinephra showing up as panephra is not that much of a transformation. Would you say, would you agree, would you dispute that? Like, Well, um, it's just occurring, I just had this idea. If you handed this to someone that knew nothing about astrology, would they be able to follow this at all? Or is it because we already, because one way you can read this is, they say that this sign is a Kendra, because other people call it something else. Like an implica- It's either telling you something for the first time, or it's telling you, hey, this is what they call it. And you might know it by a different name. And I was just wondering, does this read like something that would be clear to me if I didn't even know what a chart was? Mm-hmm. Or does this sound like someone who might know things, but now it's going to be telling me, well, this is how the Greeks call it and how they define things and the names they give it. I don't know. I just had never really thought of that before reading the text. And it struck me now. that, that- I mean, it's relatively for an ancient text, like if we're thinking of some of the more terse like Greek Hellenistic text, you run into sort of the yeah. same issue where yeah. they're very, very concise in their introductions yeah. and like they just say, This is this concept, this is what it's called, and then they move on. Yeah. And you're lucky if they give you like one once they've established it, like one signification for what that even means <laughs> right. uh, before moving on. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is immediately after this, it starts introducing the significations of these houses as well as the rest of the houses outside of the angles. And one of the things that's interesting is it actually introduces them within the context of the what we call the angular triads in the West. Uh, or actually, I mean, that was actually a term that Robert Schmidt came up with because we didn't have a term for it, but it was a grouping of the houses around the four angles into four sets of three mm-hmm. that was a commonly used motif in Hellenistic astrology and seems to have been part of the original conceptual structure for how they came up with some of the significations for the houses. So this is um, passage or sentence 54. It says, know that the ascendant, and then Pingree puts in parentheses here, the second and the twelfth are significant because it's like the text is, Pingree's inferring this because he knows that the significations are being given for these groups of three houses but the text is using this extremely condensed sort of language. Anyway, the text says, know that the ascendant, and then in parentheses, the second and the twelfth, also in parentheses, are significant. And then the text resumes with respect to property, body, thoughts, and so forth. So <laughs> and so forth. And so forth. So 
this is a little weird because um, we have a question of like what is being assigned to to which. Yeah. Um, there's two that are relatively common there. One of them is associating the ascendant with the body. That would be pretty standard. Yep. And secondarily, associating property with the second house, which is the sign yep. or the house that follows after the first. The only one that's a little weird is thoughts and the question of whether that's being assigned to the first or if, is that being assigned to the 12th. Um, I, I could make some arguments about that, about the 12th and its association with the bad spirit or the bad daimon in Hellenistic astrology. Let's skip that for now. Um, it then moves on to the fourth house, and it says the fourth, and then Pingree puts in parentheses the third and the fifth indicate things related to the parents and children. So it's only giving us two significations there, but right away we have two pretty straightforward ones that also give a parallel from the Western tradition, which is assigning the parents to the fourth house and assigning children to the fifth house. Then it goes on, it says the descendant, and Pingree puts in parentheses the sixth and the eighth indicate things related to the wife and to coming and going and are significant with respect to injuries such as illnesses. So here uh, things get a little bit complicated, but we still see some pretty clear parallels where in the Western tradition as well, the seventh house and the descendant is associated with the wife or the marriage partner in relationships, and the sixth house is associated with injuries and illnesses. So the only one that's a little bit unclear is it mentions coming and going, although that could be relevant where the seventh, at least in the Western tradition, is sometimes associated with travel in some authors like Ptolemy. Yeah, and it's sometimes associated with that in the Indian tradition. I mean, this is where, you know, if only poetry hadn't been all the rage, because right. I'm guessing the prose, <laughs> you know, prose explanation would have been a little clearer, uh, because they do sometimes sacrifice to get the meat the meter right in these poems. Yeah, and that's unfortunately something that's not conveyed in this translation, and right. we we run into similar issues in the attempts to to translate some of the Western texts, like Manilius, that were written in the form of a poem, is that translators will tend to translate them into not verse, but whatever the opposite of verse is. So you're not actually, right. when you're reading the translation, getting the full effect of what the original language sounds like, where they're writing it in the form of like a poem or a song, uh, which is, is tricky. Yep. All right. So... Um, then it goes on and it says, know that the midheaven, and then in parentheses, the ninth and the eleventh, indicate things related to sovereignty and various successes and are significant with respect to the treasury and the army. Um, know that a cardian is made auspicious by benefic planets, even if they are weak, and inauspicious by malefic planets. So in these, cardians is bound up in the mundane creation, both good and bad, with all of its results. And so also in them is bound up the birth of individuals. Uh, so that one's a little weird because it says sovereignty, success um, with respect to the treasury and the army when it's talking about like the ninth and the eleventh and the midheaven. Does that make sense to you? Well, if we're going to say that the tenth house is the house of the king, but right. I mean, uh, and now I feel like. Maybe there's a bleed through between royal horoscopy and normal person horoscopy. Um, mm. Because obviously, as a rank and file merchant, you know, you're not going to be 
caring about the army. So that is that is a bit puzzling. Sure. Um, all right. So it goes on. It says they say that the third, the sixth, the tenth, and the eleventh signs from the ascendant or whoa, from whoa, whoa. The you missed the most interesting thing. What? What? Oh wait. No, no. Never mind. Never mind. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I lost my place. Hold. <laughs> You're getting ahead of us. Are bound. Both good and bad. Okay. Go on. Fifty-seven. Yeah. 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 Fifty-seven. Okay, they say the third, sixth, tenth, and eleventh signs from the ascendant or from the moon are apachaya, which Pingri says in parentheses means increasing, and the rest up apachaya, which means decreasing. So this is one of those unique things that doesn't actually, as far as I know, have a real parallel in the Hellenistic tradition, but became a pretty standard and important doctrine in the Indian tradition, right? To this day, yeah, at least the first half. So everyone learns the Upachaya houses are the ones said in this uh, paragraph. Um, but then the rest are decreasing. That is not a concept that is taught. Um, oh, so that, that dropped out of the tradition? That dropped out of the tradition. Or okay. it was never part of it, if you want to argue that India had its own tradition. But it's not, or at least I've never encountered it. Because that would mean... Because when we say increasing in the way I was taught and the way the, the modern books teach it is they're houses that improve with time. So they're like, uh, you know, it may be, it starts off as a seed and eventually it will sprout. And if you have the patience and the time, those houses improve. If they, if they look bad when you're younger, they tend to improve as you get, as you get older. Mm. The flip side of that concept, whereas all the other things get, well, maybe that is the case, right? Your body, the older you get, it does decrease. If you look at it from the point of view of um, you're on your way to the end and your career, uh, well, I don't know. That doesn't, I don't know. The body is maybe the best example of, of something that would decrease after a certain point. but Sure. But this is, this is one of those things. So this is a good example to point out of one of those things where up to this point, we've seen parallels, especially when we started talking about the houses where there's a really close parallel between mm-hmm. the Western tradition, the Greek mm-hmm. tradition, and the Sanskrit tradition. But then all of a sudden, it's still talking about the houses, but then there's a concept that comes out of nowhere that we have no real parallel for. As far as I know, unless somebody wants to make an argument about that, that it might be connected to like Krematisticos or something like that, but I don't really think so, mm-hmm. um, where there seems to be a unique concept here. And then we have a question of where did that come from? Like, Where did this unique concept connected with the houses come from? And then it becomes so important in the Indian tradition from this point forward. So, where did it come from? Do you know? Can you fill me in? Where this concept came from? Well, I guess we've established we don't know conceptually, but I guess the point I'm getting at is just that this is one of many instances where there may have been unique developments where even if this text represents a synthesis of, let's say, just some, even if we say just some portions of Hellenistic astrology. And some portions of the indigenous astrology of India into a new system. This already- might be a representative of that other stream, assuming that everything we find that we can't account for the Western uh, thing it originates in India. I mean, and it, and it backs up my notion that there would have been other Jataka, you know, if this is called the Yavana Jataka, there were probably other uh, traditions afoot. And yeah, and this, I mean, I w- this text definitely represents a kind of a unification of indigenous and 
imported. Yeah, and I would just say that um, instances like that where there's already unique development may just represent um, unique developments that took place in however long the period was um, before this text was written down, but after there was a synthesis of Hellenistic and Indian astrology. Because one of the things is we don't know exactly when this text was written, and we don't know how long Greek astrology, how long ago prior to that, prior to this text being written down, that Hellenistic astrology was imported into India and created some sort of synthesis. What we could be seeing here in this text is a synthesis of those two traditions of astrology that had been in development and had been um, sloshing around for like a century or two or even like three before it was actually written down in this text, so that it's a much more thorough synthesis of um, some elements that are familiar from Greek astrology, but then some elements that were new developments in the Indian tradition um, after that point. You know, and I, I don't think I mentioned this point at the beginning, but it, we we should say that later authors like Vara Mahira, writing in about 550, when he's uh, you know praising the ancient astrology, you know texts and things that are lost and stuff like that, he mentions um, that the Yavanas had a good good astrology tradition. So there was definitely mutual respect, um, and there wasn't this sense of either or. Or uh, you know, one's better than the other. At least that doesn't come across to me in any of of, of his writings. Um, which yeah, I mean, sadly, I is 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 more of an issue we have contemp contemporaneously. I mean, you don't know how many people come up to me when they find out I do Indian astrology, and the very first question they ask me is, "Is Indian astrology better?" Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. Is Oriental medicine better than? Uh, um, or Vedic medicine. I mean, it's like it's a weird question. I mean, maybe that's something that we just do in the West that we're always like, well, there must be one best thing. That's the thing I want to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just tricky because it gets tied up with things like that. But I feel like in different phases of history, while astrologers have that side of them where they can mm -hmm. sometimes get like territorial or it gets tied in with like their ego or or wanting to have the older or the better system. Or, or ideas of like age and how old a system is being linked with how good it is perceived. There's another side to astrologers, which is just very practical, which yeah. I feel like shows up in different areas in history where anytime you put two astrologers in the same room together for long enough, they start talking to each other and they start comparing systems and they start reading each other's charts in those two systems. And eventually, over a long enough time frame, their views start rubbing off on each other, even if they don't agree with each other, or even if they like get annoyed with each other. And that, and that can happen in an hour. I mean, I've seen it happen in right. an hour. I was in a room with who we both know, you know, a fellow master's uh, graduate, Marie Matus, and she was working out some solar return stuff, you know, based on then recent translations. And I said, oh, well, let me tell you what we do in Indian astrology. And it, and I remember I said a couple of lines and it totally illuminated what she had been struggling with. Um, mm. It's just that we had been doing it in our tradition and it was you know now being reclaimed in the West. And that was a, that was like a 10 minute conversation. So it could, you know, I'm a big advocate of it doesn't take much to spark the creativity and understanding of astrologers, probably regardless of where they are in the time stream. Right. Yeah, so um, that's probably 
part of what this text represents is just putting two astrologers together, except imagine doing that over the course of like a century or right. two or three. And then instead of it being really clear what the separate parts of the astrology are, you st start seeing much more overlap and there is much more of a melding of the sort of foreign Greek elements and yep. then whatever the indigenous Indian um, elements were as well. Yep. All right. So that sort of concludes its initial treatment of the houses. Although one thing that's really interesting that I was realizing as I read through this again for the first time in a few years the other day in preparation for this is that's its first treatment of the houses, but it actually comes back to the houses again a few pages later and reintroduces them. And I actually think I know why. Um, but before we get there, uh, let's point out that after it's done with its initial treatment of the houses, it next introduces the concept of the exaltations. So in passage 58, it says, One finds that Aries, Taurus, Cancer, Libra, Pisces, Virgo, and Capricorn are the signs of exaltation of the Sun, the Moon, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, Mercury, and Mars in that order. Uh, so there we have, again, another parallel concept where the concept of the exaltations, and it's exactly the same as it is in the Western tradition. So, so far we've had the domiciles or the, the sign rulers introduced. Now we have the exaltation rulers introduced, and it even goes into the degrees of exaltation, which it turns out are largely the same except for like two major discrepancies. So it says the exaltation of the sun is in the 10th degree, of the moon in the third, and of Jupiter in the fifth. One finds that of Saturn in the 20th, of Venus in the 27th, and Mercury in the 15th. So, um, oh, and the entrance of Mars into its exaltation takes place in the 28th degree of the sign of its exaltation. They say that the sign opposite the exaltation and the degree having the same number in that sign as the exaltation has its sign is the de dejection. So uh, this is important because pretty much most of these are the same as the exaltation degrees that show up in the Hellenistic tradition and the Greek tradition, except for uh, two small variations, but two really notable ones. The two main notable discrepancies are the sun here, it says, is exalted in the 10th degree of Aries, but in the Hellenistic tradition, it's like the, the 19th degree of Aries, I believe. And then here it says that Jupiter is exalted in the fifth degree of Cancer, whereas in the Hellenistic tradition, it's the 15th degree. And one of the things that's interesting in the commentary is that Pingree points out how um, all the rest of the exaltation degrees are the same basically as the Greek tradition, except for those two. And he thought that what happened was that there was just a, a typo or an error in the manuscript where if one numeral basically dropped out of the manuscript that from the original Greek text, then you would get what you have here in this text. So um So I in, hear what you're saying, but wouldn't the Greek text have had a bunch of X's, V's, and ones? I mean, we're thinking in terms of like our modern numerical notation. Does that actually make sense in Greek numerical notation? Do they look don't they look quite uh different or do they look the same? Well, in Greek, they use the letters of the alphabet as numbers. Okay. So it's like iota, theta, or like omega, alpha, uh, with each letter of the alphabet like representing a specific numeral. Yep. 
um, keep an eye on what page this is. I'm going to try to pull up the what what um passage number was that again? Uh, it's fifty nine. One fifty nine. So, because I want to pull this up in the commentary, because actually seeing it, um, he makes what seems like kind of a compelling. I mean, I've heard this argument point. before that there was a typo, but I, the counter argument would be someone fixed it, <laughs> you know, fixed it from the Greek tradition. Maybe. So here's here's his commentary. So I'm sharing this for a video. And this is what his commentary looks like. So this is the first time I've shown it. But so he has the passage number 58 through 60. And then he says, Pingree says, the points of exaltation for the planets are listed by Spuja Vaja are Sun at Aries 10 degrees, Moon at Taurus 3 degrees, Saturn at Libra 20 degrees, Jupiter exalted at Cancer 5 degrees, Mars at Capricorn 28 degrees, Venus at Pis Pisces 27 degrees, and Mercury at Virgo 15 degrees. So he's just listing in tabular form what we just read in the text. Um, then he goes into the Western tradition and he says, the origins of the hupsomata, which is the Greek term for exaltation, is unfortunately obscure. Firmicus implies that it was Babylonian, and this is confirmed by Ernest Widener, and then he cites a text where the modern academic scholarship thinks that the exaltations came from the Mesopotamian tradition in some late cuneiform tablets. And then he says, a standard Greek arrangement would be very close to that of the Avnajataka. And then he lists the exaltation degrees from the Greek authors like Valens. And he says, in the Greek tradition, the sun is exalted at Aries 19 degrees, the moon at Taurus 3 degrees, um, Saturn at 20 degrees, Jupiter at, at uh, Saturn in Libra 20 degrees, Jupiter in Cancer at 15 degrees, Mars in Capricorn at 28 degrees, Venus in Pisces at 27, and Mercury in Virgo at 15. Then he lists the variants, and I'll skip that. Here's the important point. He says, the two deviations in the Avnajataka then are Aries 10 degrees for 19 degrees in the Western tradition, and Cancer 5 degrees for 15 degrees in the Western tradition. Then he says, it is possible that these represent purely scribal errors, where a theta in Greek being omitted from an iota theta, so he's basically saying like um, yeah. a one being or a nine being omitted, so that all that's left is a ten, an yeah. iota. So if one literally one letter had dropped out, then it right. would change a nineteen to a ten. Yeah, and then he says an iota for an iota. Uh, epsilon in the manuscript translated by Avanesra. So then he says the second one for Jupiter, where it's 15 degrees in the Western tradition, in the Greek text, if one tech, if one letter dropped out, then it would turn into just five degrees. So that's, I mean, to me, that's plausible as a possible explanation for why the exaltation degrees otherwise are so close in almost every instance except for those two instances where he may be showing how the reason why this changed was just uh, an error in the text or the transmission of it or something it's possible but again um it seems like that's a fairly big mistake to not be caught I would mm. think, um, and it seems like you would catch that, like any astrologer looking at the manuscript, if there was something there. 
but it could, you know, certainly could be that that is plausible. It could be that there was simply a different tradition or that someone, someone's school had an argument for varying it for whatever reason. Um, sure, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in terms of textual tradition, like we do know just text stuff gets changed, stuff gets messed yeah. up like all the time in the era yeah. prior to like the printing press where people were literally by hand copying yep. these texts over by hand, or sometimes yep. we're doing it auditorily, where sometimes in the Middle Ages you would have one guy that was like reading the text and yep. like saying the words out loud, and another yep. guy who's like writing down the text. Yep. And then sometimes the modern editors have had to struggle with that because sometimes the guy writing it down would mishear a letter and would write sure. something down wrong. Sure. Um, who knows? But that's one of the interesting things one of the reasons why this is fun and I wanted to do this and I hope it's not too boring <laughs> and whatever for the listeners is that this is part of what goes into all of this academic scholarship that's been done on the history of astrology is sometimes you have these related side disciplines that you have to utilize like paleography which is the reading of like ancient texts and like how to read a handwritten manuscript and sometimes understand when an author's made an error or sometimes noting variations in the text and things like that. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, what page were we on? Uh, we were on page five, but I, I'm noticing we're hitting the two hour mark. So I don't know. <laughs> it's going to take a long time to go through the whole book verse by verse. I didn't know okay. if you wanted to move on to pulling it all together. Um, yeah. Let's go through just a few more passages because there's only a few more important ones. And then we can wrap it up and bring it all together. Okay. Okay. Um, let's just skim basically the next few passages. So it introduces the exaltations. Um, as we said, it introduces the exaltation degrees. There's a really interesting passage right here at 61 that I've puzzled yes. about for a few years. That I there's different ways that you could interpret it, but I think it might actually be describing. Um, the degrees of the angles using an equal house system, except one where it's only mentioning the four angle angular degrees. So at passage 61, it says, they say that the 30 degrees oh. in each of the four cardines from the ascendant are called the spikes. Um, and then it actually changes the subject in the rest of the sentence, and I don't think it's related. It says, in every sign, the navamsha belonging to that sign is named by the Greeks the Vargotima, which Pingree says means highest in rank. Um, so, yeah, but that passage where it says the spikes is really interesting because in the commentary, um, Pingree says that the term for spikes, um, I forget what term he said it was in Sanskrit, but that it was probably a translation of the Greek term kentron, which also means like a spike or a goad. Uh, something that like like a cattle prod that um, excites something into action, and that was part of the original conceptual structure underlying the um, the four angular houses, and especially the angular degrees, is that they're like poking or exciting the planets into action. Uh, but I always thought, I thought that was interesting in terms of the house division debate. That one way of reading that passage is it could be referring to the four angular degrees relative to the rising degree. 
unless it's saying at the 30 degrees in each of the four cardines from I mean, the, the ascendant are called the spikes. So one right. way to read that would be the one, four, seven, and 10th house or the spike houses. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely, and that's the way I always used to read it. I just thought it was weird because it's already introduced the Kentron like houses and called them the, the Kendra houses, the four angular whole sign houses, and said that they're called Kendras or Kendra, Kendras. Um, so maybe it is just reiterating that, and that's the way I always used to read it. But then one day I was wondering if the fact that it actually specifically says 30 degrees, if it's talking about that, measuring it from the degree you know, of the I ascendant. actually have a note from the first time I read this where I wrote, check Sanskrit, question mark, because I wanted to like dive into it. I mean, it almost seems like there's something missing or there's some things thrown together yeah, I mean, because, I mean, I think because what what's different here is weird. you might be right that it's just referring to the signs because what it did before when it used the term Kendra is it was just transliterating the Greek term Kentron into Kendra, which didn't then mean anything at that point, probably in Sanskrit. Whereas hmm. here in this passage, it's actually translating the term Kentron into its equivalent Sanskrit term which here means spike basically which is, right. is essentially what the greek term uh, meant so which is interesting because in arabic ben dykes has spent a lot of time over the past few years talking about how the arabic astrologers translated the greek term kentron into arabic as watad which he says means stakes so it's like you get the same conceptual term of like stakes spikes kentrons like a goad and so on and so forth yep all right, so sorry, we're getting stuck on that. Another, there's just like every passage you go through. There's really interesting stuff. Um, let's see, other passages. Skipping through the rising times. Um, oh yeah, here it is. It returns back to the significations of the houses on a few passages later at passage seventy. Yep. So it had this whole like interim digression about all this other stuff. And then for some reason it returns back to the houses. And here it starts giving significations for them, a new set of significations. So it says, one finds that the ascendant or the sign occupied by the moon is the body, the second place, the family, the third they say is the brother, and the fourth relations. The fifth place is called sons. The sixth they name the place of enemies. The seventh is the wife, and the wise men say that the eighth is the place of death. One establishes the ninth as the place of righteousness, and they say that the tenth is work. The eleventh is the gaining of wealth, and the twelfth is its loss. So right away, that's really important because we've suddenly then returned back to the houses and suddenly get a much more straightforward and pretty closely parallel treatment of the primary significations of the 12 houses that are largely exactly the same as in the Hellenistic tradition around that same time period. And it's, an, and it's immediately telling you to look at it from both the ascendant and the moon. Yeah, you know what's really interesting about that is the parallel, well, there's two parallels in the Western tradition. One, Rhetorius says the same thing when he gives delineations of the the signs of the zodiac and the um, like which sign of the zodiac is rising 
at the end of his work. Um, he says that these delineations apply if you have your ascendant there or if you have your moon there. Mm. So there's actually a parallel tradition in Rhetorius. There's a secondary parallel, which is that one of the things that's interesting that the Avanajataka does here and that's unique to the Indian tradition is it really puts a lot of emphasis on derived houses from the moon as a secondary set of houses in addition to derived houses um, or just houses from the ascendant. Right. And and that become a very became a very common thing. The only parallel, aside from that rhetorious passage, that's actually very common in the Western tradition is they did commonly did derived houses from the lot of fortune. Like right. Valens and Manilius both describe right. this as being one of the primary purposes of the lot of fortune is that you use it as an alternate ascendant and you do an alternate set of whole sign houses from the sign that the lot of fortune is placed in. And what's interesting about that is that the lot of fortune is supposed to be the lot that's primarily associated with the moon, mm-hmm. whereas the lot of spirit is associated with the sun, and like the lot of eros is associated with Venus, and so on and so forth. But the the lot of fortune is specifically supposed to be the lunar lot in those early treatments of the lots. And and this is one of those instances where again I kind of wonder if because the concept of lots doesn't seem to show up in the Avnajataka, no, it doesn't was- seem like. I was yeah. just going to bring that point up that uh, that lots are completely absent here, and yet they are so fu- so fundamental. It seems when you start getting into the the Greek texts as we have them now, um, and so again, this notion that there might there's a there's a, a stream of information that's earlier than the surviving texts we have um, might point to that. Well, and what I, what I was thinking here, and one of my possible solutions I've always thought about this is: what if they read the concept of lots and why that was important, and that the moon, the lunar lot, or the lot that's derived from the moon, is doing you doing derived houses from that? But what if the Indian author who like gets the exposure to this Hellenistic tradition, and they're taking some pieces from it that they like? But then they see this one piece where they're doing these weird mathematical formulas in lots, and they're like, that's crazy. I'm not going to incorporate that. However, the moon is very important, we think, in the astrological tradition. So doing a set of derivative houses directly from the moon instead of doing this other like weird derivative mathematical concept would make sense. So maybe it's another instance where they just conceptually were like, yeah, we agree with the idea that the moon's important and you could do an alternative set of houses from it. But to us, it makes more sense to do that directly from the moon instead of like doing it from the lot of fortune, which is this weird mathematical point. I would argue that it's equally possible that you don't even need exposure to the lots because what was Indianus? What do we all agree for scholars and lay people alike agree is that Indian astrology was watching the moon change places and associating um, significance. And, and meaning to those places where certain activities were auspicious, certain things. So they were already, they already had this tradition of from the moon being important. And right. it may have just been as simple as, oh, there's this ascendant. Yeah. And that's important as is the moon, which we've been you know using the whole time. Right. Yeah. I guess I was just trying to explain how there's, trying to rationalize how there, why there was a parallel but the closest parallel in the Western tradition was derived houses from the lot of fortune, which happens to be associated with the moon. And so there's some weird overlap there, obviously, yeah. though it's slightly different. Yep. 
They were um, like, well, we can't take your Indian tradition. We're gonna, we'll have to make it a little more complicated. Right. So um, with the significations of the houses, all of these are pretty standard significations, both east and west. The only one that's weird, there's only one or two that are weird from a Western perspective. And I don't know if this is standard in Indian astrology or if it's a typo or what, but it says the second place, the family. So that's kind of weird. Does that show up at any, any yeah, other? It can't, yes, it can mean like immediate family in Indian astrology. Um, okay. It can mean like the immediate uh, household, although the fourth house is also the home and family. But yeah, that, that, does, that does live. I mean, I think I could even pull down light on life, you know, heart to foe. I think you can find it even in the modern books. Okay. Well, that's one that, at least as far as I know, there's no Western parallel for. And the only other one that was a little iffy was the ninth as the place of righteousness, but I could easily see that in connection with the Western tradition because the ninth is the place of like religious religion and like religious ob- observance and things like that. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's, yeah, I mean, the place that would make perfect sense. I mean, we as the place of righteousness, that would right. make sense in the Indian tradition for sure. So what I think about this, one of the things, one of the points I wanted to make that I was thinking about the other day with the house thing is one of the questions is why does it introduce the houses twice, two separate times, and give two separate set of significations? And then also note that the first time it introduces them, it introduces them primarily within the context of the angular triads, which is the grouping of the signs into four sets of three based around the four angles. So it's like, 12th house, 1st house, 2nd house as one set, then 3rd house, 4th house, 5th house as another set, and so on and so forth. So that it's like providing the conceptual structure for the houses in that list of significations. And the interesting answer that actually may be connected with the Western tradition in this instance is that we see the early Western Greek authors doing the same thing, like Thrasylus and Antiochus, because they had two separate um, origin source texts for their early sets of significations of the houses, and one of them was from Hermes or was attributed to Hermes, and one of them was attributed to Asclepius. And they both gave similar but slightly different sets of significations of the houses because they were coming at it from slightly different conceptual standpoints. Sure. But in the Asclepius one, the second one, it gives more family members and assigns them to the signification to the twelve houses, just like this second set does. And so, I would kind of actually bet you that that's the reason why in this text um, we're seeing these two different sets of significations uh, in two different areas, because it's probably whatever the Greek source source text is that they're drawing on probably also had these two traditions for the houses. Coming from Hermes and Asclepius as well, just like in Thrasylus and Antiochus. Right. What do you What do you think about that? Uh, that could be. I mean, it also. Okay. I mean, that's a plausible argument. It also some of the chapter, this section in particular, or this page as it printed in this edition, also feels like it's mushed together. And I'm wondering if some stuff is actually missing or something. I mean, it's just sort of weird to have a. Let's just throw out the concept of Virgotima right after we've explained uh, the angles, and then now we're going to tell you about Mula Triconas. And I mean, it's just a whole bunch of like miscellaneous 
that my modern mind would say, well, shouldn't we be throwing this at the end and stick to our little coherent presentation? But right. uh, but I don't know. Um, yeah, it's tough. We don't know what the state of the text yeah. is, or if there's things that have dropped out or been added. Um, you know, I do want to tell people. You know, if you've made it this far in the in the in the show, we have like uh, there's like two is, listeners left. At this, this <laughs> there is uh, there is um, it is a fascinating book, and it does actually have some pra- practical things that you can like you know test out in your own own life. But one helpful piece that we should have probably said at the beginning of the show is you have to read the last sentence of each chapter to find out what the chapter is about. And mm-hmm. that was uh, that was like a Sanskrit uh, norm where you would like, here's the chapter. Like we always put the title of the chapter at the beginning and they always put it at the end. So it, mm-hmm. it kind of pays to read that to kind of orient your mind about what this chapter is going to be about. Because we've right. just been reading the nature of the signs and planets and yet it's had so much more in it. As sure. we've seen. Yeah, that's a good point. And most of this is like the first chapter is really long and it's mainly introducing basic concepts. But then most of the rest of the book is actually delineation material where it will go through planets placed in signs and planets placed in houses and tell you what that means. And that's actually most of the majority of the rest of the text. Yeah, all 79 chapters. Yeah. Uh, so one last thing to mention here, just skip ahead a bunch of passages to passage 83, 83. Where it's Whoops, wrong it, on page seven, where it says, Saturn, Jupiter, and the sun are strong in the daytime, Mars, Venus, and the moon at night. Mercury is strong either by day or, or at night. Yeah, and, and that's the basic part. So I thought this was interesting because this is basically the doctrine of sect that is exactly the same in the Western tradition is a major concept in Hellenistic astrology and to some extent in- Yeah, and it doesn't make it past this text, as far as I can tell. It just does not, even when we get into uh, planetary strength, planetary strength combinations, and it and it does divide the planets uh, strong day or night, it's a different, it's a different allotment. Um, this is really a pure rendering of the of the Hellenistic sect doctrine, but it does not make it uh, into into Jodish as, as practiced uh, in later by the rest of the country and the way it's practiced now. Right. Um, so that, that's really interesting and important to me because it was such a major concept that's mentioned by every major Hellenistic author, and. Um, to me, that's evidence that this was like an early text where it's introducing some foreign concepts, but some of the concepts just didn't take off and, and right. didn't become as popular in the later tradition or, or for whatever reason. Yep. Um, what about that? The second part of that same sentence, the benefics are strong in the waxing phase of the month and the others uh, in, and the malefics are strong in the, in the waning phase. Is, that, is there an analog to that in the Hellenistic tradition? I mean, there's some stuff about what phase the moon is in and different planets like working better or worse mm-hmm. based on that, where the sect doctrine gets a little bit more complicated in certain authors. I had a student at one point who did a lot of work on that that was interesting, but I've never fully gone into it. So okay. I can't tell All you right. like the exact parallel. Um, next show. Yeah, next show. Next show will uh, be the exact parallels show. Right. So I think those are all of the major things that I meant to mention. 
um, in terms of interesting passages and just establishing some clear connections, especially if you are already familiar with like ancient Hellenistic astrology. Like you can start to see some of the parallels here pretty quickly, I think, right? Yeah. And also the differences in, in uh, India culture is dot. We didn't really cover any of the passages on, you know, caste and cultural things, but it's, it's dialed in. I mean, it's definitely a marriage of the traditions. Um, and yeah, like one of the things I'm showing here is that it introduces the concept of like friends and enemies. Yeah. So it says Jupiter is the friend of the sun and the rest are its enemies. All except Mars are friends of Jupiter. All except the sun are friends of Mercury, and it, and it just keeps going on. And that's that becomes like a major doctrine in Indian astrology, but has no parallel in the Western tradition, right? Right. And and that's partially somebody. I think one of my, I think Dennis Harness, one of my early Vedic teachers, tried to say that it might be connected with like the re- religious connections of like which gods were said to get along or not get along. Is that true, or is this just a purely astrological concept? Uh, well, this is where we get into, um, and the Indian listeners may may disagree with me, but my understanding uh, from the historian point of view is pretty much all of the planetary mythology uh, from India came after the astrology. So they all end okay. up being teaching stories, and it's hard. It's not like in the West where, oh, we have this Aphrodite tradition, oh, and we're gonna we're gonna take the star of Ishtar and call it Aphrodite, and we're gonna map all those myths onto it. It, it wasn't like that. It seems like the the astrology came, and then a whole bunch of mythology was created. That yes, when you hear the mythology, it does make connections and make sense of the friends and enemies, but it makes sense of a lot of different things because they're like elements of teaching, you know. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So the rest of the passage just, or the rest of the chapter goes through other stuff. It starts integrating unique Indian concepts from like Ayurveda. Like here in passage 114, it says Jupiter, Mars, and the sun are of excellence, sattva, oh, yeah. Venus and the moon of passions, rajas, and Saturn of ignorance, tamas. Mercury accepts the other characteristics depending on which planet it is in conjunction with. So that's incorporating things from like the indigenous medical. Uh, tradition of India with Ayurveda, right? Yes, and also just the um, so also uh, one of the popular philosophical schools, um, the Samkhya philosophy, uh, also divided the um, one of the ways it divided the cosmos up was in, was in these three principles. So now it's just divide, you know, it's attributing plans to these different principles. Um, okay. But yeah, we're now we're getting into the marriage of definitely Indian philosophical uh, concepts and the astrology. Right. But that made sense because one of the one of the interesting features of the Indo Greeks is their kind of rapid assimilation of um, Indian religious and philosophical concepts. Right. So these are like people that speak or can read Greek, but they're adopting Hinduism and Indian um, culture and customs. Yeah. Yeah, and and philosophy. So that that becomes important in of itself. That astrology in any era always inevitably, to some extent, the way it's practiced ends up becoming part of an out not an outgrowth, but a reflection of the cultural context in which it's practiced. Because if you're going to like sit down and read a chart for somebody, 
you have to apply it to their life, uh, right. whatever their life is about. Yes, and part of that sometimes is the astrologers will also tend to want to practice it within the context of whatever the prevailing scientific and medical and philosophical concepts are in their time. Right, and it's sort of no different here, where it's being adapted to the culture of India. Even if there's some kind of foreign influence coming in, it's being molded and changed and, and changed in some instances by, you know, some of those considerate philosophical or, or metaphysical considerations. Right. All right. The only other thing to mention here, really quickly, since we're on this page, is it introduces benefic and malefic, but its breakdown is actually really interesting. Where in uh, 109, it says Saturn, Mars, and the Sun are always malefic. Jupiter, Venus, and the Moon benefic. Mercury is benefic when it is not mixed with the other planets or their Vargas. When it is so mixed, it takes on the nature similar to theirs. Mm -hmm. um, the malefic planets are hot, the benefic cold, and Mercury has a mixed nature. So that's really interesting to me because on the one hand, there's a, that's similar to the Western tradition in the breakdown of Saturn and Mars being malefic and Jupiter and Venus being benefic. But then it's interesting that it makes the sun malefic and the moon benefic based on this conceptual structure of like hot and cold. Yep. Where the hot was more dangerous in India than perhaps. Well, no, I mean, you're look, Alexander is in the desert. I don't know, that's interesting. But uh, the way we're taught in modern Jyotish is that um, the sun is mildly malefic because it is hot and burns things. Right. And in the Hellenistic tradition, you had a similar idea that the sun could sometimes be like functionally malefic because you don't want to, if a planet falls under the beams, it would be hurt or debilitated. Yeah. But otherwise, usually for the most part, I think they just classify Saturn and Mars as malefic and Jupiter and Venus as benefic. So there we see a similar, again, like an, an overlap or a similarity, but then also a slight difference of there's some other element here. Yep. Yeah. All right. So that's pretty much it. The only th other thing is at the bottom of that page, it mentions the um, genders of the planets, which is kind of interesting in terms of other discussions I've had on the podcast. It says in uh, <laughs> yeah. number, number 115, it says mm -hmm. Jupiter, Mars, and the sun are masculine. Venus and the moon are feminine. Saturn and Mercury are neuter. They're sex depending on their situations. Um. So I thought that was really interesting just because there has been some debate in the Hellenistic tradition about there's a reference in the Arabic version of Dorotheus about Saturn being feminine mm -hmm. and a question of whether that was a typo or whether there was some variation of early Hellenistic astrology that treated Saturn as feminine. And while we don't have that fully here in this tradition, we do have an interesting variant where they're not treating Saturn as masculine, but instead right. they're treating it as like neutral. Yeah. Yeah. So thought that was interesting. It All is right. interesting. But again, we don't know if that was part of the indigenous tradition being folded in or represents a variant of the Hellenistic tradition being presented here. But that concept of Saturn and Mercury is uh it is present in the modern text. That has survived okay. that has survived That's time. Standard. That category has survived the ages. Got it. Okay. All right, so that is basically just a handful of passages of this very long, long book, and most of the rest of it is like delineations of different situations. 
Um, yeah, but why don't we bring this around, bring this full circle, and wrap this up? Where did we get to after going through all of that? We've we've seen that there's some parallels, but we've seen that there's also some major differences. Yes. Okay. We've seen so, that. Um, well, and one could argue that astrology has always had a knack for adapting itself wherever, it, where you know, to whatever culture, wherever place it finds itself. Right. Um, and and especially in the West, when it's gone through so many different uh, language changes and cultural changes and religious oversight changes, and yet, and and survived the scientific revolution, and then. Yay, Freud gave us a, the first psychological model, and then Jung, and then you know you have modern astrology going all over the place. I mean, um, I think when we look at 20th century astrology and all the changes and innovations that happened there, uh, it's not impossible to think that at any you know uh, period in history when people could communicate to each other, um, there would be some you know innovation and development. Um, yeah, I mean, and there has been exchanges in later traditions that's still happening today, right? We have both yes. Western astrologers adopting and sometimes incorporating Indian concepts into their yep. astrology. Yeah, like one example could be like the triplicity rulership theme. I think like the decanates that are used in some like modern Western astrologers, or what are some other Indian concepts that modern Western astrologers have adopted or been influenced by? Uh, well, thanks to the software uh, integrating some Vedic principles, I hear a lot of people check their dashas. You know, they're tropical astrologers, but they'll you know they'll they'll run their Vimshotri dasha. And I mean, probably one of the most common things I get is Western astrologers saying, "Yeah, those like really work." You know, I pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. um, there are. Uh, there are bits and pieces of Indian astrology that can be easily integrated into into Western astrology. They don't require a, a total uh, change of the zodiac. Um, but uh, so, can we say yeah. what is the baseline conclusions that we can come to, if any, here? I mean, to me, I feel like the baseline is that there was some kind of influence of Greek astrology on early Sanskrit astrology that we see traces of in this text, and so that somebody could say that there was some sort of transmission and influence of Hellenistic astrology on early Indian astrology. However, it would not be correct to say to take that too far and to make the claim that that like all of Indian astrology comes from Hellenistic astrology or something like that, that would be way overstating or way overextending the point because yeah, obviously, it, obviously there's a lot of unique stuff and that, and the that is in this text. And, and, the, and the bedrock of the problem is we're not talking about isolated societies. We're talking about people that were literally in bed with each other, you know. So you've got um some recent archaeological evidence you know showing what what might be a small community of indians in alexandria during this time you have the indo-greek kingdoms you know there's a, so everyone's talking to each other all the time uh the trade routes are connecting the great civilizations even before the hellenistic empire so i'm guessing there was a lot of back and forth and everyone was looking at the sky you know um because it was so important. And uh, 
I think what the Yavna Jataka shows is a very interesting, and this is a, a thing that India, I think, excels at, is being able to take ideas and um, dial them in. You know, uh, what we call modern Hinduism would kind of be unrecognizable if you went back 2,000 years ago, but it 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 borrowed from uh jainism it borrowed from buddhism and it it you know it it changed itself and so um that whatever the indigenous astrology was and maybe one day we will find one of these early texts that are talked about but no one you know no one's ever seen uh we will get a better idea of that but i think this is a nice uh marriage of um of 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 east and west uh in the avanajataka yeah um, definitely, and there have been other points of interaction and overlap over the past two thousand years, where co- other concepts have been transmitted back and forth. Yeah, and where, like in Abu Mashar, for example, we see um, the concept of the Navamshas being taken from Indian astrology and from Sanskrit, and then transliterated from S- Sanskrit into Arabic or into Latin or what have you, so that you see the reverse transmission happening as well. Right. Or in the episode I just did on the Picatrix, they were adopting the nakshatras and the mansions of the moon from Sanskrit texts and incorporating them into their astrological magic and so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's it's certainly not a one way street where yeah. it's only ever been the West influencing India, but certainly India has had. Major than influences sending astrology or portions of their astrology back west and influencing uh, Western astrologers just as much in some instances. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, yep. um, thanks for doing this with me. Uh, thanks for <laughs> s- sticking it out. It, we're about two and a half hour episode. So, this is actually bringing it in about the same length as my episode for Christopher Warnock. So, um, <laughs> I guess there's something good about that. I will be shocked that. if we get the same uh, viewer, uh, the amount of viewers as the Picatrix. But uh, yeah, I'll, well, I mean, but I'm it was, sure this was a real pleasure, and 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 who else is going to talk about stuff like this than you and me? So I appreciate that. Yeah, well, I hope it generates some interest and some discussion because obviously yeah. there's still a lot of work to be done. And one of the things yeah. I'd like to encourage people to do is we need more people with ancient language skills who yes. can sit down and read some of these texts and yes. do translations or make critical editions and who can do what Pingree did and sit down and, and do some of these comparisons to help us reconstruct the history of all ancient astrologies and yeah. to help sort sort some of this stuff out by by being able to read those texts. Yeah. So if this is like interesting to you, there's different ways to get into that. I mean, I, I definitely encourage people if they have the means or the ability to like try to study astrology or, or the history of astrology um, in the context of like a university setting, and there's different universities you can go to to learn, you know, Sanskrit or to learn ancient Greek or or what have you. Yeah. Um, there's also schools that you can go to to help learn astrology, uh, and you happen to be uh, in charge of one of those. Yeah, Kepler College is one of uh, one of those options. Uh, KeplerCollege.org. Uh, we're starting our fall term, but there are classes that start throughout. I mean, the winter term, excuse me. Uh, but there are classes that start throughout. So whenever you hear this, uh, do check out that. We're constantly adding new offerings, and uh, if you're listening to this in a timely manner, I am start. When is this going to be published? 
uh, sometime in the next few days before oh, okay. the end, before the so, end of uh, January. I'm uh, starting my crash course on Indian astrology through Kepler College. It's a five-week overview where I take you from zero to being able to kind of beginning to read a chart uh, using uh, Indian principles. And it's, it's really designed to give you um, enough to know whether this is something you want to study long-term and give you the resources to be able to differentiate what's going to be good for you and uh, what's not. Brilliant. Uh, what's the website for Kepler? KeplerCollege.org. O-R-G. Kepler okay. with a K. Uh, and, Kepler and you guys College are also um, organizing a, a webinar event for International Astrology Day you do every year, right? Yes, correct. That is a fundraiser. All that money, everyone who's involved in that is volunteering. All the money goes into our scholarship fund for people that uh, can't afford tuition. Um, that'll be on International Astrology Day, and we're just putting together the slate of speakers now. We're going to be talking about issues around fate, free will, character, destiny, these kind of things. So, But uh, we'll get on the Kepler mailing list, and you'll be uh, kept apprised of that. And very lastly, you can find me at celestialintelligencer.net or kennethdmiller.com. My website's finally back up. Uh, it needs a little polish, but it has some stuff on there uh, as well as a link to the class. So, brilliant, awesome. Well, yeah, I think people should definitely check out your work. Thanks a lot for joining me for this. Um, look Thank forward you for to having hearing... me. Yeah, I hope it sparks some interest in people doing these sorts of studies and yeah. further work that needs to be done on this text, as well as some other. So much work. Yeah, uh, but it's exciting. It's a great time to be alive as an astrologer because we have access to all of this stuff, and we can yeah. do. These sorts of cross-cultural comparisons, and then, yeah. Uh, yeah, some, you know, merging or some influencing of the different traditions on each other, hopefully in in positive ways. Yes. yes. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for joining right. me today. Thanks Thank everyone you. for listening to this yes. episode of the Astrology Podcast, and um, we will we will see you again next time. Bye bye. Thanks to the patrons who supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through a page on Patreon.com including patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Tanner Robinson, and Marin Altman. Also thanks to the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at esar2020.org, and the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening in Seattle, Washington, May 21st through the 25th, 2020. More information about that at norwac.net. To sign up to become a patron and get early access to new episodes and other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.